When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating whether or not there is evidence for Bigfoot, and we are starting right now with Erica, our guest, Gutsick Gibbon, as she's known on YouTube. Thanks so much for being here, Erica. Erica, the floor is all yours. Okay, this is this is awesome. I am so excited to be here. I um I my for those of you who maybe don't know, because it's been a, a little bit of a hot minute since I've actually been here on Modern Day Debate. Uh, my name is Erica. I go by Gutsick Gibbon on YouTube. Uh, my background is I got my BSA in uh, pre-professional animal science. I was on like that pre-vet path. And then I did a huge pivot and ended up doing my MRES in uh, primatology. So primate biology, behavior, and conservation. I also picked up a minor in biology and a minor in anthropology. So I'm very, very excited to talk about Bigfoot today because Bigfoot is, or says we know, a, a hominoid, a proposed hominoid. And um, I, before I share my screen, you know, I, I, or I guess while I'm sharing my screen, I suppose I should say, um, I am actually uh, going to classify myself as a Bigfoot agnostic for today's conversation, um, because I think that that properly characterizes kind of where I'm at um, and how we should sort of assess things like Bigfoot, things that we don't know very much about that have kind of support for it in, in either direction. Um, so can you guys see this? Is this all good? Okay, let me see if I can figure out how to how to do the whole deal. The, I might just have to, to, to keep it, I might just have to keep it to this little deal unless someone, oh, present. Okay, it's right there. Okay, much better. Um, so Bigfoot, did it, big, Bigfoot debate, uh, Erica, that's me, that's a given. So what's Bigfoot? Well, Bigfoot is a colloquial word for some kind of currently undiscovered hominoid. Now, Bigfoot, the colloquial usage tends to refer to the North American cryptid, but cryptic hominoids are pretty characteristic of most cultures. A lot of cultures tend to have these wild men archetypes and they range from being, you know, some hairy dude living out in the woods to being something that can truly be interpreted as this kind of uh, apish hominoid. So as a hominoid, Bigfoot tends to be characterized uh, by a large size, obligately bipedal locomotion, so walking on two feet, thick hair, a sagittal crest in both sexes and potentially facial hair, but it depends on who you ask. So what's the big question? Well, the big question is, we've got thousands of Bigfoot reports throughout the years and dozens of proposed videos of such animals. So is there a large and unknown hominoid lumbering across several continents, or in the case of tonight, uh, North America? And I'm going to kind of start with my big issues uh, to, to convert me from being a Bigfoot agnostic. <clears throat> So, of course, there's the obvious, the, the lack of a body or conclusive video footage. Now, I use conclusive there very loosely because I'm sure we're going to be talking about the Patterson-Gimlin film which is, in my opinion, the, 
some of the best evidence in favor of this, this cryptic North American hominoid. Uh, then there's lack of fossil record in North America and along these proposed migratory or, um, or um, movement paths across the Bering Strait and things of that nature from areas like Europe during the Miocene. Another one that I tend to think about when I'm assessing this kind of thing is metabolic challenges for these large North American hominids and how they're going to meet these challenges without detection. So what I mean by that is uh, Bigfoot's big. Bigfoot is proposed to be big. He's or she, they are, are large hominids that require massive, massive caloric intake in order to maintain uh, these large body sizes. And in the case of, of large animals, they tend to have to consistently eat food if they're even remotely herbivorous, even omnivores tend to have to spend a lot of their time um, you know, browsing and doing things of that nature. Although I know Bigfoot is proposed to be an, an omnivore, which is, which is very interesting. And then that kind of touches on the, the last thing, which is evidence that exists that is occasionally contradictory. So a, a, an example that I'm sure we'll talk about later is like in the Patterson-Gimlin film, Patty, the subject of the film, she has these large pendulous breasts, but she also has a sagittal crest, which is typically a male trait in extant hominoids. So, and I, you know, I think we'll, we'll touch on that a bit in a minute. So here's another thing. Cryptid hominoids have been found before. I think that's something that isn't appreciated very often. When we propose that there's, you know, a, a new animal, we tend to forget that there's been periods of time when most animals were new to most people. And uh, a great example of that is the most recent, um, in, in my opinion, sort of large uh, hominid that has been discovered, which is the biliate. This is a subgroup of Pantroglodytes swineberthii um, that was actually discovered in the Congo after decades of being this mythic lion-killing chimp. And it was found um, by rigorous expedition, the Congo rainforest, which is just an enormous tract of land. Um, using known location and DNA testing revealed that the biliate was in fact a chimpanzee, uh, albeit a, a relatively unique population. It's got its own sort of um, novelties to it, primarily in its behavior, which is very bizarre in, in how it interacts with humans um, and, and how different populations of this subspecies interact with humans. But the point is, is that to me, the biliate represents uh, something of a double-edged sword if you're going to be kind of a Bigfoot a Bigfoot proponent, which is that you've got this hominid, uh, the, the subspecies of Pentroglodytes, living in perhaps one of the most remote areas in the world. And we did still find it, and we found several of them. Um, they are social living, so it's a bit easier. Uh, but I would imagine, at least from what I've read about uh, proposed Sasquatch and the like, they do have an element of sociality to them, despite being you know, typically on par with uh, orangs, orangutans. Um, in their solitary behavior. They still do tend to group occasionally. Um, now, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Melder has seen this one before, the genetic al analyses of uh, samples attributed to Yeti, Bigfoot, and other anomalous primates, and none of them came back, at least in North America. I am aware that there are some issues with this study, but I think that it is notable to bring it up simply because the North American specimens tended to be of known families even getting down to the species level, none of them were popping back as order primates, which, which I think is, is worth bringing up. Uh, and the same thing was found sort of in uh, this 2017 paper in the Himalayas when they were looking more specifically at yetis and they came back as uh, ursids. But interestingly enough, a, a very interesting um, or very strange kind of, not necessarily hybridization, but we're getting very ancient DNA back from, from some bears that perhaps are no longer even in the area. So what's the best evidence for Bigfoot, uh, Sasquatch, in my opinion? Well, it's going to be your trace evidence. So this is going to be primarily trackways and things like that. Uh, 
uh, and for those of you who don't know, dermatoglyphs are uh, essentially like the ridges of your finger of your fingers, the ridges of your fingerprints. But you know they exist on your feet and toes as well. Uh, and some of these trackways are proposed to show dermatoglyphs. And uh, Dr. Meldrum, I'm sure, will will bring up some of the some of that. I'd love to discuss it. Uh, and then there's videos, primarily in my opinion, the Patterson Gimlin film. It's the classic. It's the famous one. And it must be said that that film has never been conclusively debunked, as it were. That is just the, the, the case of the matter. Now, there, there are things that we can nitpick about it, as I'm sure <laughs> I'm probably going to do in this conversation. Uh, but that being said, it hasn't been conclusively tossed out the window. So I think that that's worth mentioning as well. And then, of course, there's eyewitness accounts. And while a single eyewitness account holds no weight, really, uh, when we're talking about a cryptid, because there's so many different factors at play that could account for it, there is a large number of Bigfoot sightings. And that's something that I think is worth addressing as well. So Patterson-Gimlin film, it's fascinating. In my opinion, there are some problems with it. There's the situation surrounding the filming that can be considered by some as being suspicious. Although from what I've looked into it, it does tend to rely on circumstantial evidence. You've got Robert Patterson. He's showing up in this location on a <clears throat> creek. And he is actively looking for uh, hominid trackways. That's why he was there. He, he and Gimlin were there. Now, they weren't actually suspecting, at least as, as the accounts go, to see a, a hominid. Uh, but they were looking for trackways. And people tend to point it out and say, okay, that's really suspicious. But in their favor, you know, they had heard reports that Bluff Creek had these trackways. So they went to go check them out there as one would if you're looking for uh, you know, a creature that's making the tracks. You go to a place where the tracks were last seen. But there's some interesting bits where, you know, Patterson had told Gimlin, you know, if we see it, let's not shoot it, which, you know, unless we absolutely have to, which some people interpret as being like, I've hired a guy in a suit, don't, don't shoot him or else, or, you know, he'll sue us. So there's a lot of weird things there. There's the issue where um, a, the, the, a, tr a local track weight hoaxer claims to have sent Patterson that way. It depends on, what, you know, how much weight you put on individual accounts. But for me, as far as the situation surrounding it, I don't consider it as much worth looking into as the actual subject of the film, which is Patty. Now, Patty's got a sagittal crest. That's the crest that runs along the top of the skull. And it's it's particularly important for animals that spend a lot of time browsing and chewing their food. Um, these are usually heavy-duty herbivores. And um, Patty's got a big one. They're, they tend to be only for males as well. I mean, females tend to have small ones in most gorilla populations, but this is a big, you know, uh, dimorphic trait in our existing hominids. We sometimes see them in females, not very often. And she's also got large pendulous breasts, which don't tend to mesh together with me as someone who, you know, looks at a lot of primates. I tend to see saddle crest, I think male, and then I see, you know, breasts, especially the kind that Patty's sporting, which she's quite well endowed for... <laughs> For, you know, a, a hominid, um, unless perhaps she's lactating, which I've heard uh, uh, Dr. Meldrum proposed before, and I'm interested to discuss <coughs> as well. <coughs> Patty also has very lowly defined glutes in the picture, which conflicts, in my opinion, with some other Sasquatch trace evidence. So in this next picture here, uh, this is actually from uh, Dr. Meldrum, I believe, and he has outlined in this picture sort of the difference between Low, you know, the, the, the kinds of costumes that folks are putting out around that time period. <coughs> Planet of the Apes came out three years after the Patterson-Gimlin film did. And uh, frankly, the costumes are, are pathetic in comparison. The, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film subject, if it's a hoax, is an excellent, excellent hoax. But that picture, that second picture of Patty there kind of caught my eye because in, and I've got this from uh, Dr. Meldrum's book here, there's some trace evidence of these glutes here on the left, a, a buttocks imprint found that's been associated with Sasquatch tracks. And I saw that and I was like, it's quite strange. This is 
very well defined and, and not so much in the Patterson-Gimlin film. So I thought to, to me that kind of, I'd like to discuss that with, uh, with uh, Jeffrey here because I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, another thing that I think is kind of strange, and I also got these from uh, Dr. Meldrum's book, is I feel as, and my, this is my untrained eye speaking, so I hope we can discuss this a little bit, that there isn't a solid, consistent foot form. You know, they tend to be relatively flat-footed, that's true. But they have, they seem to have these different topographies, a lot of these trackways that we're pulling up from, you know, these, these proposed critters. So I'd like to kind of discuss that, uh, whether or not in Dr. Meldrum's experience, does this fall within a normal range of variability or not? Um, so I think that that would be quite interesting. So for my opponent, uh, what is your best support of Bigfoot for your opinion? And, and why have we not found trace evidence for such an animal? Because for me, the thing that I, I really wanna dig into is this proposed morphology for the animal, the proposed behavior for the animal, uh, including how it's going to meet these metabolic needs, uh, as well as what's the deal with the fossil record. Um, typically, when you've got megafauna like this, they tend to leave some kind of trace for themselves. Even in areas that are just dreadfully poor for preservation, we at least find teeth. The same is true for uh, gigantopithecines that we find over in, in uh, China and Southeast Asia. And we recently found a, I believe it was a gibbon radius. It may have been a, it may have been a humerus, a, an arm bone from a gibbon, an ancient species of gibbon there. Uh, very small, very unimposing, but we did find it. So I'm interested to talk about uh, kind of like why we're not finding the fossils for these critters. I, I recognize that the Pacific Northwest, man, that's not conducive to fossilization, but they had to get there somehow. And I'm thinking that that since this likely descended uh, from, from Dr. Meldrum's point of view from a highly social animal, they're, they're traveling in groups, right? So, so I'm kind of taking this, the, the strategy that I'm kind of gonna take in this, in this conversation is again, it's going to be one of a, of a Bigfoot agnostic. I wanna pick your brain on this. I wanna see kind of what kind of what kind of model we can make uh, to, to, I want you to win me over because the thing is there isn't a primatologist out there who doesn't want Bigfoot to be real. That would be incredible. That would be earth shattering. That would be remarkable. This, this animal would, depending on whether it descended from a Paranthropine or Gigantopithecus, potentially be our closest living relative on the planet. Uh, so I want to be convinced. I'm dying to be convinced. And, uh, and that's, I think, where I'm going to end it. Thanks very much, Erica, for that opening statement. And what we are going to do is switch it over to Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum for his opening as well. want to let you know, first, folks, if this is your first time here, Modern Day Debate is a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we have many more juicy debates coming up in the future. So be sure to hit that subscribe button right now, as well as that notification button so that you don't miss out on any of those upcoming debates. And thanks so much, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, for being with us again. It's a pleasure to have you. The floor is all yours. Well, thank you uh, again for the invitation to be here and the opportunity to, to have a, an intelligent conversation. It's, uh, it's, it's always a welcome uh, uh, opportunity. I, uh, I must admit, I don't have as uh, as uh, uh, thoroughly prepared an opening statement to make, I just simply wanted to couch our embarking on this conversation with uh, uh, some general statements. And I think you've set the stage, Erica, wonderfully for that. But it, uh, uh, my experience in, in having conversations about the uh, proposition and the supporting evidence uh, for the uh, you know, possible existence of, of such a relic hominoid, I found that it's it, it's really imperative for 
someone who is serious about investigating this to to appreciate not only the the scientific context in which <clears throat> in which it's uh, to be placed, and you've done a great job of, of framing a number of uh, parameters of that, but but also the historical uh, backdrop as well, um, understanding the uh, timing of reactions of, of, of other academics and their statements, uh, pro and con, against what was known at that particular time. And as we talk about the Patterson-Gimlin film, um, I think this will become extremely evident, uh, and I'll cite some examples of, of some things that are said and, and, and often repeated, which at the time you, you might be able to justify, <laughs> However, even now with, with, with 2020 hindsight, it's kind of hard to, to imagine that some of our predecessors in anthropology would actually make such inane statements, but, but they did. And, um, and some of that I, I really believe was prejudiced by the overarching backdrop of the prevailing paradigm that influenced anthropology dramatically in the 1960s. And that was the single species hypothesis, which predisposed the mindset away from agnosticism to a, an overt prejudice against the proposition that there were other than human uh, or hominin, uh, a single hominin species lineage leading to us. That was the basis of the single species hypothesis. And uh, so that that is very important. As I listen to your presentation too, it, it reminds me that um, that it also is important that, that there is, is clarity, not only on the nature of the data, but the interpretation of the data. As I think as, as we address some of the uh, uh, perceived contradictions that you enumerated, Erica, that, that you'll see that, that the apparent contradiction stems from what I see as a misapprehension or misinterpretation of, of evidence. For example, just, just to illustrate one of those, and we'll come back to, to others, you repeatedly referred to the presence of a sagittal crest, and that's gotten a lot of, a lot of discussion <clears throat> in the literature. Um, the starting point I think it's important to make is, is that it's not definitive that there is a sagittal crest on the cranium of that film subject, if indeed that is a flesh and blood uh, creature. Um, there are some frames that give the impression that what you're seeing is actually the movement of hair, a shock of hair atop the head. There's no question that there's very little frontal eminence there that goes straight from the brow back to a, a high point, you know, a bregma that's uh, very posteriorly placed. But um, as to the development of a sagittal, I mean, even with observations of a living gorilla, what you see as far as the shape of the head of the gorilla is, is defined very little by the presence of a sagittal crest and much more so by the top knot of, uh, of fatty tissue, fibrous fatty tissue that um, uh, sits atop the, the male gorilla's head. Um, the crest itself is, is completely obscured by the presence of the massive temporalis muscle and fascia that that uh, that uh, cover it. Um, you know your comment about male versus female, um, <clears throat> and I, I didn't mean. I guess we should maybe we should hold off on this until we embark into the 
actual exchange and, and maybe take some of your things in, in a more systematic way. Or if you'd like, I'll, I'll finish this one one point and then you can respond. But uh, the, uh, uh, you know, it, it has been demonstrated repeatedly by myself and others. Uh, my colleague Esteban Sarmiento, who has extensive uh, experience with gorillas in the field and in the museum, uh, gorilla skeletons, that uh, there are uh, numerous examples, not numerous, maybe I shouldn't say numerous, there are multiple examples of female gorillas that do sport a sagittal crest. And it, uh, while there is sexual dimorphism, or it has always been attributed to sexual dimorphism, the presence of the arch uh, or, or the ridge is, is a biomechanical feature. It, is, uh, it provides attachment, as I alluded to, attachment to the, to the, uh, for the temporalis muscle um, uh, in the situation where the cranial vault surface area is insufficient to provide that alone. In chimpanzees, the relative size of the muscles to the cranial um, uh, volume is sufficient that there is a very limited or no sagittal crest at all. <clears throat> that feature is not just gender or is not necessarily gender related, but size related. And so in, a, in an organism that <clears throat> uh, is the dimensions of a Sasquatch, but has the cranial capacity uh, proportionate to that of other great apes. Remember, surface area only, um, only uh, uh, increases to the square of linear dimensions, whereas the volume, or in this case, the mass of the temporalis muscle, uh, will increase to the cube of those linear dimensions. You're going to be obligated to have a, a, an extra flange of bone um, in a larger animal, whether it happens to be a male or a female. So in either event, the one being that there actually is no apparent sagittal crest, I think there is, I do, I do actually believe there is, but given, I mean, just given the, uh, the masticatory apparatus that's evident in the Patterson-Gimlin film, there has to be big, uh, a big set of, of muscles, <clears throat> at least the size, you know, of, of something like, uh, even perhaps more so, uh, in at least the anterior temporalis, more akin to a paranthropus, as we've suggested, in which case the sagittal crest of the, of the paranthropus isn't uh, that similar to that of a gorilla. It's more anteriorly placed because the emphasis is on the anterior fibers uh, of the temporalis for posterior loading of the dentition, as opposed to posterior emphasis of the temporalis for anterior loading of the uh, prognathic uh, gorilla, which does more processing with the anterior dentition. Anyway, um, but my so my point is simply <clears throat> some of the statements that you made, I would take uh, a little bit of uh, exception to or qualify, uh, and and those may actually um, clear up some of the apparent contradictions that you're citing between the different types of evidence. So. Um, with that said, uh, and with the, the um, notion of, of a historical backdrop and a uh, uh, theoretical contextual framework within what is known about Sasquatch, I'm sorry, what is known about, uh, about hominoids generally uh, in order to discuss the plausibility. I think we're long past 
we're long past the point where anyone can intelligently and from an informed position say it's impossible for there to be such a thing as Sasquatch or, or, or an Almas even, or a Ring Pendek or a Yeti. Um, we're past that. And, and anyone, honestly, quite bluntly, anyone, academic or non-academic, who says they can't, as was said to me by an anthropologist, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence you think you have, is, has no basis for, for their argument. They are simply uh, wearing their ignorance on their shirt sleeve, basically. So possibility is there. The question then is, what's the possibility, I'm sorry, the plausibility or probability that such a creature exists? And that, that then uh, opens the door to some of your questions. You know, what about the missing evidence? We've got this. We do have evidence. I mean, I, the uh, introduction to our conversation was a, a little bit misworded, perhaps. It's, uh, there's no question that there's evidence of Sasquatch. The question is, what is the quality of the evidence? Is it persuasive uh, or compelling as to the existence of Sasquatch? So, um, so uh, we have evidence on one hand. We have uh, missing evidence, and, and uh, sometimes not necessarily the agnostics, but the skeptics, especially those with a capital S, have their favorite piece of missing evidence. And, you know, I'm constantly confronted with, with that um, lack of evidence. You know, why don't you have this? Why don't you have this? And, uh, you know, I, it was so funny. One time uh, uh, I was confronted by, uh, it was actually a department chair where I was invited, a uh, university I was invited to speak at and hosted by an anthropology department. But, um, he had asked that question during the Q&A, uh, the uh, uh, very reasonable question, where are the bodies? Where, where is, where's the physical evidence? He was actually a forensic anthropologist or archaeologist. And so in his mind, you know, and as you've alluded to in a couple of your points, everything leaves a trace. You know, as an archaeologist, that you're you're interested in that trace evidence that what's left behind, what's the signature of the of the activities and and uh, presence of of your subject matter, and so he really wanted to know where was the body. He couldn't understand that, and I gave him an answer. Uh, I, I think it's a reasonable answer. It, it's uh, uh, you know in in trying to address the absence of evidence, it may come across as an apologist's answer. But um, but it's it's a reasonable one, and uh, so to, over dinner when we had the opportunity, I asked him. I said, "Well, were you satisfied with that answer?" No, he wasn't. And uh, and I said, "Well, I th I find it interesting that that sometimes people who adopt a very skeptical position, they do so on the basis of their favorite missing piece of evidence." to the total distraction and, and ignoring of all the other evidence that is seems to be, that does exist, the existing evidence that is, that, that seems to be affirmative or suggestive at the very least. He said, he said, what do you, what do you mean by that? What kind of evidence are you talking about? I said, weren't you sitting it through my seminar? And I said, for me, the footprint evidence, his response was, well, I'm not an expert in footprints. Well, don't you think that I'm, uh, you know, uh, deserving of the deference to my expertise as I would be deferent to your expertise in forensic anthropology or archaeology? So the tone of the conversation changed just a little bit.
So I'm looking forward to our conversation in a very positive tone. <laughs> Absolutely. We are thrilled to have you here, both of you, and want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description, and that includes if you're listening to Modern Day Debate via podcast, because we do have a podcast for Modern Day Debate in which we put all of the debates, and want to let you know, folks, in the episode description box below the podcast, you can find our links for our guests there as well, and we encourage you to check on those. And also, one last friendly reminder, as I'd say 99%, 99.9% of you do a phenomenal job, and we appreciate it so much that you guys attack the arguments instead of the person. That's what we like, and so we appreciate that, and we want to continue to encourage that. And so with that, we will kick it over to Erica and Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum for this open discussion. Yes, I, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm super excited for this. And like, I, I want to make it very clear. I've, I've said this to others and I, I want to make it clear for everyone who's maybe watching. Uh, if there was ever anyone more qualified to talk about Sasquatch specifically, it, it's Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum here. I mean, he, he specializes in like hominin foot morphology and locomotion, things of that nature. Um, and, and that due respect, I agree, is is 100% um, earned. So I, I, I want to defer to you on that, <clears throat> um, as I should, I think. Um, for me, it's, you know, I want to treat this as this as an opportunity for me to kind of like, like I said earlier, like like pick your brain a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, I know we kind of talked about in, in our email exchange, mm -hmm. or the, I guess, the planning of this debate, the kinds of things that we were planning on discussing, um, what is sufficient to, to kind of, what kind of evidence is sufficient, I suppose, uh, the Patterson-Giblin film and trace evidence like, um, uh, like footprints. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of when you were, when how we were kind of slapping going a little bit on, um, on the Patterson-Giblin film, I think that's a good place to start for, for the two of us. Um, because in my opinion, and I don't know if you would agree, but as far as like visual evidence, like that, that is the, the holy grail, right? This is, this is the main one. Everyone's seen it. And I was very impressed in my preparation for this conversation that it really hasn't been conclusively uh, debunked. Now, that being said, not being conclusively debunked, in my opinion, is also not sufficient to say that it is um, an overwhelming support for the existence of a relic hominid uh, in North America. And, and I think the reason is because in my reading about it, there's a lot of things that we don't know for sure um, about the Patterson-Gimlin film, like with 100% certainty, things like the frame rate um, and uh, like the, the, the whole timeline about getting it developed, things of that nature, uh, that I think would, if we could only have access to it, like the original footage as well, uh, get it into our hands, that, that would change a lot. That would give us a lot more information that would be really helpful. But I kind of want to ask you, so so you're of the opinion that that the that Patty, the subject of the Patterson-Gimlin film, uh, is, is a female, yes? Mm -hmm. I am. So I've read like Napier's comments on the Patterson-Gimlin film and Napier, curiously enough, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he's a primatologist and he also kind of discussed how he was like, he he is a, a, a acceptor, believer, however you want to put it. He is in, in favor of the hypothesis that there are <clears throat> American hominids, but he doesn't buy the Patterson-Gimlin film, right. which I think is very interesting. And one thing that he kind of touches on as a, uh, a support against it is the gait of Patty. She's, she walks in a very masculine fashion, right? Yeah. And um, and in your book, you kind of discuss how, okay, this is to be expected if we're right. dealing with uh, you know, a relatively small-brained uh, hominid. There, there was very little sexual dimorphism kind of in the movement of, of our Miocene apes and things of that nature, in all likelihood. 
nor is there very diff- much difference in chimps. But I saw that and I, I wanted to ask you a question because to my understanding, the evolution of bipedality lends itself to a, a, a horrible conundrum for females of a species, especially primates, uh, because you, you've got to keep that birth canal, you know, narrow enough to stay an efficient biped or to become an efficient biped, but it's also going to be wide enough to, to give birth. So how do you suppose, because I, I see Patty, I see that she's got a masculine gait, or I, I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I'm told that she's got a masculine gait, I see that. And then I think to myself, okay, to me, that's got to lend itself a little bit, at least, to uh, kind of support against, because if she is a female, would she not have a, a feminine gait, considering she's got that bull-shaped pelvis and that uh, sort of uh, saunter that we tend to associate with wider hips? Paleontologically well, speaking. I mean, you, you, you touched on the key point right there in your last utterance there, wider hips. Why would she have wider hips unless it was constrained by an enlargement of the birth canal to accommodate a large-brained baby. Without that constraint, the hips, the interacetabular or, or, or distance between the hip joints is going to be comparable between a male or a female. Uh, there's no enlargement. That's what gives uh, that, that uh, wider interacetabular distance uh, is what gives the the sway to the female pelvis when walking. There's a greater a cantilever kind of a, uh, a principle going on there as weight is, is um, balanced over or, or, or vaulted over the support limb. If uh, when, the, when the swing limb is elevated, the tendency is for the pelvis to drop to that side. Paralysis of the glutes on this side produces what's called the Trendelenburg syndrome or sign, where with each step, the, the pelvis tends to drop. And so the patient will throw their arm. You know, if you've ever seen a chimpanzee, the, the chimpanzee walk, like they're walking on a tightrope. Well, they do that because they don't have the rearrangement of the medial uh, or the gluteus medius and gluteus minimus around to the lateral side so that now they're abductors of the hip rather than extensors as the gluteus maximus remains. So in short, I mean, this, you know, that, that's one of the statements that's an embarrassment to the discipline, <laughs> quite honestly, that the only one that supersedes that is the fact is the one was made by, um, uh, oh, shucks, now I just went blank on his name, but he was an expert on primate skin and uh, he, he thought it was, it was laughable that here she was presented as a female with the breasts, but mm. yet those breasts were covered with hair. Mm. And everyone knows that all primates ha- are, are essentially devoid of hair over the, over the breasts. Wrong, uh, you know, mm. at least not the primatologists of this generation don't, no. uh, don't, don't make such assertions. And, and if anyone has any doubts, you know, a simple experiment you can do is just step out, you know, ladies, step out of the shower on a cold, into a cold room and uh, check for the distribution of goosebumps over your, your body. And if there's a goosebump, that's a hair follicle with an erector pili muscle attached to it. No matter how fine, how, how ephemeral that hair is, it is, the muscle is still present. And if you have goosebumps over your breast, you have latent hair follicles uh, present as well. And they're responsive to androgens. Uh, uh, females with hormonal imbalances can experience the, the um, uh, pro- not proliferation, but the, the uh, uh, um, expression of, uh, of coarser hair uh, mm. in a male pattern distribution uh, 
And uh, so anyway, that that the the remark about the the female to male um, uh, walk is also uh, misses the point entirely. Uh, do do yeah. you suppose though, kind of a question on that? Because from from my understanding, uh, the the nature of this adaption to bipedality does have to do with the the architecture of the pelvis. So the reason why. Um, you know, for instance, chimps and gorillas, when they, pennons, I suppose, and gorillas, when they stand up and they've got that bow-legged stance as they're kind of shambling along. And like you said, it's like they're on a tightrope, uh, is, is in part because of that pelvic architecture that was one of the first things to change when we start to see this adaption of bipedality um, in, in the Australopithecines and depending on who you talk to, uh, Artificus ramidus and even if really Oreopithecus and some of those Miocene apes, depending on who you talk to, because they're still, still kind of up in the air. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that, that like, I guess, help me out on the understanding on what that pelvis architecture would look like that simultaneously lends itself to this kind of uh, awkward masculine gait for both sexes that at the same time makes this animal such an efficient biped. Because I, when you see this thing move across, when you see her, she's moving across the frame, she's zooming. You know, she's covering that front. She's in, I would think if anyone would agree, these guys are good at walking on two feet if they do indeed uh, wander the Pacific Northwest. Now, did I hear it correctly? Were you saying that that male uh, males walk awkwardly? Oh no 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 oh, no okay, no sorry okay. no no. What I was what I was saying is the difference between uh, there's like right. you can tell the difference between males and females how they distribute their weight when they move yes. like biomechanically. Yep. And my question is, so, even though that distant, like I'm, I guess what I was saying is that you noted that the the way that Patty kind of holds herself, it is masculine, not a problem because it's quite similar to have, like their pelvic architecture is. I, I guess what I'm asking is how it's going to lend itself to a more awkward gait that we see in Patty, a more masculine gait, and then at the same time lend itself to efficient bipedality. Well, the, obviously the, the, the principal uh, rearrangement of the pelvis or elaboration, I mean, this is, first of all, let me back up. There, there's a common misconception and it, it, it stems from the, um, the idea that we evolved from a chimpanzee-like ancestor. Right. And it, true, it, it is in many respects more chimpanzee-like than it is modern human-like. Sure, sure. But when it comes to the pelvis, the, the pelvis of, of the African apes, and to a lesser degree, the, the Asian apes, the orangutan, has, uh, has derived tremendously in, in a direction towards um, a very specialized brachiation type of movement, hang, arm hanging movement. Mm. And, and with that has come a shortening of the lumbar spine and a <clears throat> elongation of these very forwardly directed iliac blades. And so um, the human, on the other hand, has, a, as you described, a more bowl-like, bowl-like in that the iliac blades have curved around. They're very short and they're curved around anteriorly, which brings the, as I mentioned, the lesser gluteals into a position to function as glutes, I'm sorry, <laughs> as abductors, the lesser gluteals as abductors, which is the principal bipedal adaptation. So that we don't have to swing our body mass back and forth, balancing over each leg, the, these muscles, and you can, you can test this as you walk down uh, to just take a step, put your hand on your hip and you'll feel the lesser gluteals flex as you swing that leg, the leg of that side forward. 
or, or opposite the opposite leg, the contralateral leg, the support limb, those muscles fire to keep the pelvis from dropping on the swing side. Right. Okay? And that is what, uh, you know, therefore, then we don't have to incorporate uh, a shift of center of mass uh, above the waist, and we can use our arms to swing and, and uh, employ the moment of inertia created by the swinging arm so, in a very effective way. <clears throat> okay, so, so if I'm understanding this correctly, and I, I'm just trying to steal man kind of what, what we just went through here. So the idea is essentially that uh, the, the hominins, the yeah, hominids, I guess I should say, the, the hominids that both extant humans and, and uh, other extant great apes kind of descended from had this much less derived pelvis between right. um, the two of us. Like it wasn't, right. it wasn't more chimp-like, it was almost right. a mosaic between what we see now right. and we've got in chimps. So that kind of leads me to my next question because in anthropology, I'm sure you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, there's, there's the question right now with the Miocene hominins, uh, hominids, again, sorry, hominids, sure. yeah. uh, whether or not <clears throat> it, humans who I'm using as our template for the trackway to bipedality, <clears throat> whether or not they evolved from kind of a suspensory ancestor <clears throat> with that up and down posture mm-hmm. or from a, a, a knuckle walking quadruped. Right. So my question for you is, because I've I, in your book, it seems that you very strongly allude to this gigantopithecus ancestry for a Sasquatch. So how do you suppose we're getting that that bipedality from uh, from something like Gigantopithecus? How do you make that mm-hmm. movement? Because at least from the little we understand, uh, or do you suppose Gigantopithecus wasn't a quadruped? Uh, I, I don't assume that it was a quadruped. And I don't think anyone is justified in assuming that it's a quadruped, even though that's the default position that many resort to okay. uh, because they assume, and, and it, again, it's, it's an assumption. They assume that bipedalism is a strictly synapomorphic character unique to the hominini, yeah. uh, you know, the, or hominidae, I guess, or whichever, the, the hominins. Yes. Uh, that that defines the clades to which the clade to which we belong in our and our immediate ancestors since the divergence from uh, an ancestor. But as you've alluded to by enumerating some of these other Miocene apes like Oreopithecus and Artipithecus, which almost certainly in my mind was not a special case that was a hominin. There's very mm-hmm. little justification for that in my opinion. But and then recently there was another um, Duzen, Duzenensis. Uh, no, not Duzenensis, Danuvius, Danuvius was another species recently um, described and was attributed with very, very likely with an, at least an orthograde posture, if not capable of of, uh, bipedal locomotion. Um, So the point being is, and this was kind of where I was driving with this uh, to, to, by emphasizing the fact that We did not evolve from a chimpanzee ancestor. Mm. We evolved from a chimp-like, but one that if you focus on the pelvis had a much more generalized pelvis. You look at Artipithecus, and and the problem with that is uh, Artipithecus pelvis was smashed into a bazillion pieces. Mm. And, you know, they reconstructed it, but they kind of reconstructed it to the... uh, to, you know, to the dimensions and shape that they were anticipating and, and um, uh, it's, it's not a reproducible uh, method, uh, in my opinion. But, uh, but nevertheless, the point being that, that, that a number of these Miocene apes had pelvis that would require much less modification to become 
Australopithecine-like and eventually human-like right. than if you started off with something that looked and walked like a chimpanzee. Right. So Gigantopithecus, it's assumed because it's not a hominin. You know, it's it's a the, the most recent analysis that uh, uh, actually compared DNA attributed uh, placed it most closely to um, Asian apes. You know, the orangutan. Right. Well, bear in mind the orangutan isn't representative of all Asian apes. Hmm. It's one surviving species and a highly specialized example. So uh, placing Gigantopithecus amongst the uh, Asian apes, we, should, we shouldn't uh, fall prey to the temptation to say, well, it was just a big orangutan. Yeah. But, but it probably had, as did so many of the Miocene apes, have rearrangement of the uh, of the uh, um, uh, shoulder girdle, the pectoral girdle, for uh, overhead arm hanging or climbing postures and and positional behaviors. Um, there were probably some, uh, like Shivapithecus, for example. Uh, That's it, what I was going to bring up. Yeah. Its postcranium seems to be much more quadrupedal, almost more monkey-like. Right. And and the big difference between apes and monkeys is apes or monkeys rather are cursorial. They're cursorial quadrupeds, whether they're terrestrial like baboons or semi-terrestrial, or whether they're arboreal quadrupeds. But yet they have gone through a, a period of evolution where their skeleton has been remodeled to more resemble your dog or cat than say a spider monkey. And so that means their thorax is compressed. The, the shoulder blades are vertical to align with and extend the, the, the motions of the humerus. Um, in, in contrast to apes, which tend to be more brachiators, they have the flattened chest. I mean, the, the reason we have a chest that looks more like a chimp than it looks like a baboon is that we are capable of doing things that a baboon can't do in, in, in on the jungle gym you know at recess we we our playground is a perfect testament to our legacy of tree climbing yeah. um and so um now take that uh one of the arguments for uh, the highly modified form of quadrupedalism found in chimps and gorillas and when they are on the ground and aren't rolling like a ball orangutans yeah. um, is that the arrangement of the shoulder joint is such that when we come down on all fours now uh, start at the shoulder our shoulder blade now is on the back of the rib cage you know slight angle but it meets the humerus like this not like this bones tolerate compression really well but they don't tolerate shear Mm. And those same kinds of, of uh, modifications of the elbow and the wrist that allow for that full extension and twisting of, of the, the wrist, such that when we go down to do push-ups, you know, why do some people buy these little uh, hand grips to put on the floor to do push-ups? Well, the same reason when I do push-ups, I do them on the backs of my knuckles so I can keep my wrist straight because when I put my hand like that, man, it really hurts here across the capitate and the, or not the capitate, but the scaphoid and the, and the lunate there. So um, imagine all of those constraints to, to going down to all fours that might have predisposed some of these hominin ancestors to, an, uh, which were already rather upright from their uh, climbing in the trees. When they came to the ground, it was 
made more sense to just stay on their hind limbs. Now, if you amplify those shortcomings of the skeleton in an animal that weighs in excess of a thousand pounds, you know, when they come to the ground, what are, what are the odds <clears throat> if it turns out that, that Gigantopithecus um, went through a suspensory or a climbing phase as so many Miocene apes did, but then as it gained this tremendous size, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense to go up in the trees. Yeah, well, it support it. Yeah, it wouldn't right, can't support it. So it's on the ground. So at the very least, you've got a 50-50 chance of either walking on two legs or walking on four. What I have just described, in my opinion, tips the scale in towards the direction of bipedalism right. and in independent evolution of bipedalism, but nevertheless, a, an argument that can be made that, you know, I expect that when they come out of that one of those Vietnamese caves with a gigantopithecus femur, it's going to look like a hominid. <laughs> Wouldn't that be incredible? I hope we find one. I hope we get one because yeah. I've been dying for more uh, gigantopithecus. You know, I, it, it just, it drives me nuts. You know, and I love, I love hylobatids, but it drives me nuts that we're finding little hylobates, you know, remains before we're finding yeah. anything from this gigantic well, uh, right. you know, hominid right. from, from Southeast Asia. But I, 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 that leads me to ask because, you know, and I'm, I'm dreadfully curious, it, the, the pressures are very trackable climatically speaking, that, that led many of the Miocene apes and then, of course, many of the of the kind of savanna dwellers of, of small woodland forests in the Eastern African Rift, uh, what drove them down from the trees, as it were. Sure. Um, so so to, to my understanding, part of the reason why, and you know, I, I have looked into this a bit because we see this really weird thing in Southeast Asia, for maybe those of you who don't know, I'm sure you know this already, mm -hmm. but, but uh, where we see these two weird adaptations with the hylobatids, the gibbons, and the um, our, our members of Pongo, um, and Gigantopithecus. And the Gigantopithecines get really big, and the gibbons get very small. And it's almost, at least what I've seen, it's been proposed that you've got kind of like a like a climatic shift in resources. So how do you suppose that that tracks for driving these, these animals to a bipedal stance in these rainforests? Because that seems very counterintuitive to me. Well, if if there was, uh, uh, and and I'm not uh, I'm not 100% yet confident or, or or conclusive about what the range of Gigantopithecus is is in in Asia in Eastern Asia. Mm -hmm. um, our our fossil record. You're you're right that we have found them, but we've just barely found traces of Gigantopithecus. We've got you know for for a million and a half years of tenure. <laughs> two jaws and a few thousand isolated teeth. Yeah. And the critical thing is we only have those because porcupines took them into the caves, dragged mm -hmm. those bits into the caves and, and chewed them up. And, mm -hmm. and see, that may, be, that may be the limiting factor. It's just uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the spurious jaw that a porcupine can manage to drag a, a gigantic femur of a big ape like that may be too big for a porcupine to get into a to drag up the hill into the cave who yeah. knows because then when you go north of the of the yellow river uh there are representatives of that same community but there are uh, uh there are no gigantopithecus teeth or, or, or fossils found in any of the limestone caves which are present there it seems that there's this formula you have to have a limestone cave and you have to have gigantopithecus and you have to have a porcupine to concentrate the fossils. Hmm. Without the concentrator, the, the Gigantopithecus don't frequent the caves. They're not inhabitants of the caves. And so 
their fossils are never are never going to be produced north there. But if they were, if there if there was an, uh, a movement of of this population with the forests and and with fragmentation, perhaps it's the exposure to climatic changes in the northern latitudes that's selected for increased body size. Just as as um, I mean, they were not. They were not uh, bamboo. Let's let's dispel that misnomer. They were not bamboo specialists. They weren't restricted to bamboo forests. Yes, there's evidence of phytoliths, but you read that paper carefully. They've got pitting too. They've got yes, pitting well, as well. Well, but yeah, pitting that's that caused by the by the phytoliths in in a some grass. If you read that original paper by Shahan, there were four teeth. Only two of them had the phytoliths, and he didn't identify to species the grasses the phytoliths came from. Just assumed they must be bamboo. They were eating bamboo because they, because this panda bear model. And so, um, but if you <laughs> you know if you if you look at the studies that have been done, uh, both surface wear, uh, micro wear, but more recently um, uh, stable isotope analysis of the teeth have hmm. clearly shown. That their diet was Catholic. It was they were generalized omnivores. They were not bamboo specialists. So all of those, all of those uh, musings and modelings and so forth about both their distribution and their behavior, are are uh, on very very uh, clay feet. So if um, I may, I I, I want to push back on you a little bit there because I I would propose that that not being able to isolate a specific diet to a specific grass sedge or bamboo. What makes you suppose that that, that leads to omnivory though? The, 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 the uh, stable isotope analysis. Oh, right. Okay. It, mo most, uh, most similar, but even before that Daglin and, and uh, Grine did a, a, a much more thorough paper looking at microware analysis and did it very extensive comparative and, and came to the conclusion that the, um, the wear patterns were most similar to chimpanzees, that they were eating, you know, not even a, an herbivore like a gorilla. Well, a gorilla isn't a strict herbivore. They do, it's when it's present, they do take fruits and they'll even uh, do, uh, you know, invertebrate protein when, it, when it's uh, possible. But anyway, but, but um, there was no support for a highly specialized diet. Um, I mean, whatever their diet was, it was clearly coarse and, and uh, required a lot of mastication as evidenced by the very thick molar enamel and the greatly reduced canines yeah. will allow for that amplified phase two, that side to side grinding of the, uh, of the chewing cycle. Um, and so that, uh, you know, in, in that respect, functionally, it's very convergent with the adaptations of the paranthropines. Right. Yeah. With hyperthick enamel, molarized premolars, reduced canines. Megadont teeth. Uh, yeah. Big monster. Right. right. So, so, but then with chimpanzees, and, and of course it varies on population, certainly. Sure. Like, um, yeah. Because they're totally, I'm not, same with bonobos, all penons. You know, you've, you've got opportunistic and even intentional omnivory from, from the likes of, like you said, small invertebrates or, or frogs to the active hunting of a uh, diaper or, um, yeah. or uh, colobus monkeys. Right. But it still makes up a very small portion of their diet. And I'm thinking to myself, if we're talking about something like Gigantopithecus or a Sasquatch for that matter, which is being these very, very large animals, right. um, very similar to the recent, or I guess it's not that recent, but uh, but the work that's been done on Neanderthal, like caloric intake, because they, 
they weren't as tall as us, but they probably were a bit more robust in their body size. Yeah, much um, and they yeah they required enormous caloric intake, which is why when they would go and hunt, they would specifically uh, take the organs and the you know uh, very high high calorie uh, yields from the animals that they killed. So I, I, that leads kind of to my next question, which is whether it's with Gigantopithecus or with the Sasquatch, how are we meeting these metabolic needs in such a way uh, that we're still not stumbling across these guys? Because the likes of, um, you mentioned in your book, uh, Rhinopithecus uh, roxanella, the, um, the snow monkeys, um, you know, they, they maintain their diets in these northerly climates by going in and pulling back tree bark and eating lichen and uh, lichen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm not seeing that as working for a critter the size of a Sasquatch? Well, um, a, a couple of things. One, we, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, on, on the basis of um, uh, comparing the possible diet of, of primates that are in uh, subtropical to tropical environments to mm-hmm. one that is uh, hypothetically in a temperate environment. Right. And, and we don't know what, we don't know what their, um, you know, their behavior is during the winter, whether hibernation is part of their adaptation or whether estivation or dozing, you're like a bear. That'd be super Um, neat. Yeah. But, uh, and, and especially in light of, of some of the recent publications that, uh, not only in the human genome project, uh, elucidated some of our genetic hardware that, uh, that, uh, suggests that, that we have, uh, homologous genes to, uh, the, which in humans apparently has been suggested control circadian rhythms mm. but that are homologous to genes that uh, moderate uh, um, uh, hibernating behaviors in in other mammals and then the recent paper about neanderthals and i'm, I'm trying to uh, i'm grasping here but there was a paper that uh, uh on the basis of it was something to do with uh the bone um, remodeling that suggested that they had annual periods or daily periods of, um, uh, not daily, but seasonal periods of inactivity, of reduced activity and reduced metabolic uh, uh, activity that uh, suggested the authors to the authors that perhaps Neanderthals were hibernating or at least estivating for, for extensive periods of time, uh, which is really interesting. I mean, it's always, the I, I I always rebuff the retort that that um, uh, you know primates don't hibernate. Mm. Well, it only takes one mutation. I mean, or at least one one adaptation in a, in a species. You know, look at look at vertebrates or, or carnivores. Take the order carnivores. How many carnivores hibernate? One. You know, so if you're going to generalize and if you didn't know about bears and you're going to generalize from all existing carnivores and say, well, they don't hibernate, it's impossible to conceive of a, of a carnivore that hibernates. Well, then you would rule out the existence of bears before the fact. Likewise, you know, I mean, it's that's the problem. So I, especially when there's all this uh, suggestive evidence. I agree. I agree on that point. I don't think that like, like rarity certainly does not suggest impossibility. And I would even propose, and you mentioned this in your book as well, uh, you know, we've got some structure lines that hibernate. um, That's right. During the dry season. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility, but I would push back with, with Rhinopithecus roxanella and with um, uh, Japanese macaques, macaca buscata, uh, because they live in these environments that I would at least suppose on the, on the pressure end of things. Right. Kind of push them towards that 
uh, uh, um, sort of prime them rather for that kind of adaptation. Sure. Um, and, and so to me, although to your point, I would imagine that it would be much more difficult for a larger animal. Like I think, no, but then we see a lot of small animals, uh, members of like rodents, et cetera, that, that also engage in like hibernation cell activity. So I don't know. I think, I think I'd have to put a pin in that. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would have to put a pin in that because that seems to me <clears throat> just so, but yeah. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that's impossible. Um, so so, so what, do you think they're, what do you think they're consuming? Well, uh, pretty much uh, uh, everything. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, th that is edible. Now you've got the, and I have to defer. I, I don't have the expertise. Uh, I, I work closely with an ethnobotanist who knows these things uh, inside and out, and and he's working. I, I've he's done several very interesting presentations on this subject, and I've been pushing him to get it written up so that I can study it more intimately myself but for example he shows this one slide you can't read it because it's so exhaustive the length of all of the species that that uh, grizzly bears are known to eat all the plant species and it's it's amazing the diversity um and then he's he he has uh, reviewed the the plant uh, families that are represented in uh, say gorilla diets and, uh, and many of those have vickers or have comparable species here. Um, and, and those could be added. He then also lists all of the plants that humans typically uh, utilize for uh, edibles. Indigenous populations have historically used and, and still continue in some instances. You know, so when you consider a bear is able to make a living, um, uh, yes, they do hibernate, but that requires that they actually take in and consume much more by way of uh, total calories in preparation for that period of inactivity. A great ape, you know, one of the arguments that has been made against the possible existence of Sasquatch is that you've already got a large omnivore, right? Bears are present already, so how would you partition that niche? Well, omnivory is a pretty broad brushstroke, but um, if you look at the um, alternate origins of these two large omnivores, bears derived from a canid-like or carnivore ancestor with a, with a simple gut and uh, carnassials and uh, the, the dentition and the jaw structure of, of a carnivore. The bear has widened out those teeth a bit it has certainly elaborated the small intestine. However, not so much the, the large intestine. On the other hand, you've got, if Bigfoot exists, it's almost certainly derived from some form of, of, of ape or early hominin, which is basically a bipedal ape. Uh, so it's probably derived from a frugivore, folivore ancestor, maybe some protein as, you, as we talked about. Um, but it has a much more capacious gut, especially the uh, large intestine, because the great apes are, sent, are largely um, uh, large intestine uh, hindgut fermenters uh, in order to detoxify and digest this uh, 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 folivorous diet. Sure. Well, if Sasquatch is derived from that, it has then the ability to consume, to masticate, you know, the jaws of, uh, that you see on patty or uh, the jaws of either a gigantopithecus derivative or a paranthropine derivative are going to be able to process foods that really are, are not available to a bear from the 
from the mechanical land, but then add to that also the, the, the uh, gut physiology. Uh, many primates are capable of detoxifying, digesting and detoxifying secondary compounds that make many plants unpalatable to other animals and have a slow gut passage time, which, you know, Patty's big, uh, she doesn't have a huge pot belly that's evident, but her torso is as thick front to back all the way down. You know, I think it's that more bowl-like pelvis. You don't get the appearance of a big pot belly suspended from this rather flat horizontal pelvis, you know, uh, iliac blades. So I think she's got a very capacious gut and capable of the gut passage time and so forth of a, of a large folivore. And that opens up I mean, just say that opens up a whole yeah. list of things that bears could need. Yeah, I would agree with you. I personally, I don't really have an issue with with you know two large omnivores kind of coexisting in the same area. There's there's plenty of things in the Pacific Northwest uh, to exploit, uh, mm. regardless de depending on which omnivore you are. The thing right. that I would mainly point out with that is that um, when it comes to organisms that like primates, for example, in, in this case, that spend a lot of time eating, which something of Patty's size would have to spend a lot of time doing, sure, even sure. if you account for like, uh, uh, even focused omnivory, because that guy, you're fueling this massive body. Sure. Um, and anytime you're including omnivory, I mean, for instance, bears spend a whole lot of time foraging and hunting. Like that's yep. just what they, and then they still sleep for half the year. Sure. Um, so, so what I'm thinking is that in the case of gorillas, when, you know, there, there are folks who, who work out on these, at these field sites and they spend, uh, they're, they're dedicated trackers. And one of the ways that makes it very easy for them to find gorillas as opposed to chimpanzees is, is when they forage, they leave massive traces of themselves, partially because they're social and it's a big group of them sitting in an area, stripping vegetation and chowing down all the time. But I'm thinking to myself, even if we're dealing with something solitary, if, if you've got this small population of, of Sasquatch living in the Pacific Northwest and they're spending an awful lot of time eating and foraging uh, and, and exploiting, especially I would even posit because they're exploiting so many different resources, and resources that are not being exploited by bears and thus cannot be easily attributable to bears. I'm thinking, would you not think that by now we someone would have stumbled across perhaps someone even dedicated to, to the idea of sussing out what's going on with, with Sasquatch and thought to themselves, okay, I've got this plant and something big has been eating it, or I've got this carcass and something big has been eating it. And forensically speaking, it's not matching up with the usual suspects of our of our ursids, right? Or even some uh, smaller carnivorans. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of that? Well, I, for one, as you point out, uh, uh, unless someone is is out there to to literally suss what uh, Sasquatch is doing, there there aren't people looking for such sign. And, and it's it's not that easy to recognize in, in the types of habitats, at least that I'm familiar with. Okay. Uh, you know, even when you have a you have a herd of elk going through an area, yeah, you can find the twigs that have been nipped and so forth, and occasionally you can find where bears have ripped open uh, stumps, and you can you can certainly see by the the claw marks that it's a bear. But but you know that even that sign from an from animals that are much more numerous is is pretty ephemeral and uh, and 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 you know unless you're a real trained observer you're not going to and there just aren't people out there looking for that sign and your average uh, amateur enthusiast isn't isn't certainly isn't qualified even even someone like myself doesn't i don't i wouldn't profess to have the experience have not spent the time I mean, when i'm out there i'm looking for trace evidence and in, in the form of tracks 
uh, whenever I can. And uh, those other things, you know, you watch for them, but, um, and, and then I, and, and, and would just add to that, it's, it's that uh, moving needle in a haystack. Uh, the, I, I get the impression from the distribution of, of track finds and sightings, you know, in given geographical regions that, and, and their infrequency, that these animals are probably moving, as you say, foraging, uh, and they can be foraging constantly, but they're moving, their, their resources tend to be rather uh, dispersed. And so uh, they don't leave dense concentrations of sign. I mean, a gorilla can sit down for the day and pretty much sit and forage without moving. Just what he can gather within arm's length. And when he's done, he's he and all his cohorts in the in the in the in the troop have uh, essentially mowed down or crushed down by their presence uh, the vegetation. And uh, you know, I would wager you you have you have perhaps glossed over it just a little bit because my my uh, uh, understanding from reading the the various narratives and so forth. You know, if you know where those gorillas were yesterday, it's pretty easy to find out where they are today. That's true, too. Well, and you've got but, dedicated folks who go out there. I mean, I've built field researchers who they go to sleep with the primate they're right. and then they right. make their way back to the to base camp, and then they get up before they're awake, and then they travel back out right. and wake up with them at the site. So I would agree. I would agree with that. I, I guess I'm more thinking from the perspective of like, because it, because it, if, it, if, if it's me, if I'm out there and I'm, I'm looking kind of for, for support, I'm thinking to myself, if, if this is a, a true generalist, which it sounds like it's got to be to be yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm looking at every, you know, uh, turned over log or whatever, or, you know, and, and I'm seeing to myself, okay, can I see signs of scraping nails or, you know, specific dentition, gnawing yeah. and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, and, and God, wouldn't it be amazing you find the gnawed teeth and you get some saliva and boom, like you've got your, you've got your DNA, which would yeah. be uh, superb. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I would. We would hope, right? Exactly. Um, and that kind of leads me to my my next question. I'm sort of peppering you with questions. I know. Oh, that's good. That's this good. is a good opportunity for for me to kind of uh, get your perspective on things. Um, so, has anyone done? And I'm sure you know this, which is why I'm asking. Um, like an eDNA study out there. Uh, and for those of you who don't know out in the audience, just let everyone know. So the way an eDNA stands for environmental DNA, and it's basically you take a bunch of water samples, soil samples. Etc., and then you scan these series, vast series of samples for trace DNA of local critters. Because as animals ourselves, we leave our skin cells all over the place, and most animals do the same thing. Uh, and so you tend to get a decent ish idea about what's lurking around in the area. Right. Um, yes. Sorry, go ahead. We did, we did a preliminary um, associated with these uh, uh, ground nests that were found in the Olympic Peninsula that were attributed or potentially attributable to Sasquatch. They were discovered by a timber cruiser who was marking out uh, timber on, on private timber land, uh, an area behind a gate, uh, but yet, and yet mi uh, miles down the road into the area and then miles from the road, he was, he was out traveling cross country marking out sections for for logging and stumbled on this site it's a, an interesting story in of itself but to make a long story short for edna i had the opportunity to go and take core samples from the center of these nests they were submitted to todd disatel one of the only molecular anthropologists who who will interact with us on this subject right uh, for dna analysis he did a 
rather cursory study looking at uh, cytochrome oxidase 2, I think he, he was the gene he was looking at on the mitochondria, but he only did a short segment. He didn't do very much. And um, he said that it was, uh, well, he had a whole litany of forest creatures that you would expect um, that should sure. be in that area and human. And that was the only primate represented was human. And I pressed him on, on how confident was he because, I mean, if we're talking again, if we're talking about something that's, say, a paranthropine derivative, we're talking about something that could be 1% or a half of 1% different than us genetically. I see. And uh, so I said, have you looked at enough sequence? He said, well, this particular stretch that I looked at when you compared humans and Neanderthals, Neanderthals differ by three substitutions. So it should be able to pick up something that is... Um, more distantly related to us than Neanderthals. And I said, well, but that's Neanderthal evolution. I, that You're making a big assumption based on a small sample that, that the creature in question would also differ from us in at least those substitutions, if not more. It, it may differ from us somewhere else in the genome by a lot more, but happen to be identical to us on those. Well, he... And I discussed this with a number of other other geneticists, and 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 they all concur. They said, uh, because you know what happens is is if we do test that saliva or we do test that hair and do get DNA, invariably so far it comes back as human, and the conclusion is well, it's either contamination from handling the sample or you've just misidentified a human sample, a human hair or human uh, a human source. But the third possibility that has to be uh, chased down all the way is if this animal is that closely related to us, potentially it's going to take a lot of DNA to be confident that you're not um, simply uh, writing it off prematurely. You know, it's like, you know, for, for the person that's not con uh, um, uh, familiar with these techniques and so forth, just imagine you have an advents calendar. And with a bunch of little doors, you know, leading up to Christmas with a little sweet behind each one. And, and, but instead, we're going to have segments of DNA and say, instead of 24 doors, we've got a thousand. Well, if this creature is one tenth of 1% different than us, then that means only 10 doors in that, uh, out of that thousand are going to hold information that will discriminate between the two species. But if you finance a study that opens up only 10 doors out of those thousand, what are the odds that by chance you get one of the, you know, one that has the golden ticket in it? And if you, you're, you're thinking we're just not covering enough. Stuff. Right. Yeah. We're not covering enough. Well, well by okay. chance. What, go ahead. I, I was just going to say my, my pushback on that, I guess, would be like, you know, humans and Neanderthals, the general number they throw around is like 97 point or sorry, 99.7% uh, across, you know, for coding base pairs, which is. Right. You know, it's it's very similar, but we're also ninety eight point eight percent tannin, so it's you know that that point three percent carries a, a decent bit of weight. I mean, we right. are different yeah, species. Potentially, from, yeah. yeah, we are different species from Neanderthals, and you know, there's a, there's the deal with genetics where small genetic differences may make for larger morphologic changes, right. uh, just depending. So, but I'm thinking to myself from from your perspective, right? It's like I would almost at that point rule out a gigantopithecus ancestor because that's so <laughs> far removed. Like to me, right. that would almost seem like you really want to pull back on Gigantopithecus and go more for, for Paranthropus. But even then, I would be like, all right, you know, we're, we're talking about what a potential common ancestor with, 
maybe an Australopithecine, maybe a bit earlier, um, or Orin or something like that. I don't even think we've got that mapped out. I think it's just kind of sister group it's kind right. of over there, right? So, so I'm thinking like, and while while I think you're, I would I would hesitantly say you're right. You definitely want to sequence more stuff to be sure. Right. And right. very preliminary, there is always the chance that you're you know, dealing with um, even a sampling error. Like it could be you want to go out there and get more samples. I don't know. And and that's very far outside of of my field. But that being said, I I would think that if it's going to register a Neanderthal difference, it would register a Sasquatch difference. You would think, you would think. But but on the basis of, I mean, he only sequenced about uh, 700 nucleotides is all. I mean, that's just a that's that's not enough in my well, from one location i would even argue that that that's certainly not enough to, to rule it out but at the same time the the sasquatch deniers are are fighting an uphill battle here because precluding something is not as easy as providing right. support right. for something or definitively precluding something right. i should say so in any case in any case the the uh the anticipatory story here is that uh uh as i was you know fretting over this third possibility the phone rings and it's a uh, uh, it's a uh, geneticist uh, who happens to be on vacation up in Yellowstone, mm. and he's a he's a, a new uh, uh, actually a visiting professor or postdoc at UC Davis. Okay. Cool. And uh, he pardon. I said oh, cool. Yeah. And and he was in the neighborhood, so he said, "Hey, I've always been a big fan, fascinated with the with the question." He said, "I'm, I'm passing through. Can I stop in and visit?" And I said, "Well, of course, if you'll let me pick your brain." And so he was another geneticist who concurred. Oh, yeah, you should be doing the entire mitochondrial genome and at least at least a dozen nuclear genes to boot to be confident. And he said, "You should talk to my professor." He said, "I I studied uh, in uh, New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand." Uh, he said, "My professor Neil Gemmel." and paused as if I should recognize that. Well, I'm not great with names, but it turns out, he goes, Neil Gimmel, he's the, he was the lead investigator in the uh, multinational study of the Loch Ness waters. Oh, wow, the eDNA study. Yeah, yes. I know the one, I know the one with the eels. Exactly, and I go, oh, this is perfect. You know, I said, do you think, would you put him, put me in contact with him? He says, oh, absolutely, I'll introduce you. And so uh, this was a year and a half ago, pre-COVID, and so Neil and I started going back and forth, dialoguing, and he he got intrigued and is uh, is uh, eager to undertake a project. Uh, if I can come up with the, the lion's share of the funding for it, um, right. and uh, but then COVID hit, yeah. So everything got put on the back burner. That's how it and, went. Uh, I know yeah. that sucks. So over the winter or over the over the summer and this coming winter, we're we're. Uh, uh, putting our heads together, and we're we're uh, crafting a proposal to do uh, a, a more extensive study of those nest sites for one, but also in other areas. I mean, doing uh, I want to do some water sampling too, um, in areas where there have been um, recent reports, and be poised. You know, everyone keeps telling me, "Have you checked the uh, you know your your plaster cast? There could be actually DNA in, in the soil or attached to the." The plaster. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a it's a, a a stretch that anything has survived the handling and so forth uh, uh, to to avoid contamination, especially given our previous discussion. Right. But fresh footprints, you know, scoop up that soil and and do uh, do analysis on that. So so that I I really do think I'm I'm really happy you brought that up because 
I see that as the future direction, you know, going out and hoping that you find tracks or hoping that you bump into a Sasquatch or, you know, the idea that anyone's going to shoot one with a tranquilizer, I think is just, mm. is not, uh, is untenable. But finding their trace, it's still a very rare and elusive animal, but yet if you can get into areas that have a history, that have, uh, you know, contemporary sightings, and be ready to jump on it and then have the methodologies in place to uh, collect uh, yeah. samples. I, I think I think that that would be amazing. And in part, it's especially cool that it's the guy who did the... the, yeah. the oh yeah, it's a little extra the, hook, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's really cool too because it's, um, if memory serves, and I actually, when I, I lived in the UK for nine months prior to COVID from, from my MRES, and I took that opportunity to visit the Loch Ness in, in Dharma. Oh. Which was really fun, and we went to the museum, and I was actually surprised by how cynical the museum was, but I, I really did enjoy it. And um, one of the things that they mentioned, you know, about that eDNA study with the eels is that, you know, most people there didn't even know there were eels in the log. You know, oh, most really? didn't know that they existed in the log. So the, the fact that they were catching this on the eDNA for something that most folks had just never even seen, I think that bodes really well for for you know, uh, using it as a potential study for, right. for bolstering or um, eliminating certain lines of evidence or support for, for Sasquatch. I think that would probably tell you a lot, but you're going to get, so I think you're also dealing with a, a much like, you know, bigger area too, that it's like you, right. you're, you're sweeping a lot of space there and you kind of just got to hope that, you know, something, assuming that the, the, the Sasquatch is a legitimate organism is that it's, it's passing through there. Sure. Uh, that's right. Which, which I, I think it has to be has to be focused. You can't, there's just no way. I mean, this, this is the challenge. You know, I, I tell students too, it, it, I can't go out in the field and systematically collect evidence for or against Sasquatch other than the absence of it. But, uh, you know, it, it's your chances of, it's not like you can just do a transect through the forest and, and see if you bump into a Sasquatch. It just doesn't work. And, and, and that's well, uh, you know, th there are methodologies for studying rare and elusive species um, that, that use other alternate techniques. But even those, I mean, they're animals like, you know, wolverines or martens or fishers, you know, that, that, that um, are probably still more numerous than Sasquatch, I would wager, but uh, at least in some areas, not always. But anyway, yeah, it's, it'll have to be a fairly focused uh, uh, study. But, uh, so do you think that, uh, and this is what kind of alluding to one of my, my questions, because like I, for me, it's the, my big two is that I'm, I'm not really as concerned with the, with the lack of a body or things of that nature. I think there are a lot of organisms that are very difficult to find. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly you can't, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, I suppose, is how the saying goes. Right. right. But I do, you know, I put my, my butt there, but um, I do right. find the, um, the, the, the fossil support, the, the paleoanthropologic stuff on that pathway, because I know you've suggested in, in, in the book uh, and in prior conversations, you know, there's this potential crossing of a land bridge, right, from Europe or Asia, we're at one of these locations. I mean, rafting for an organism this big might be a little difficult. So it's like, you know, making, making it over via a land bridge. I'm thinking that given how organisms of this size tend to move, why is it that, you know, because I guess I'm imagining that this range used to be a bit more expansive and then, you know, it's shrinking as, as human encroachment occurs and, and right. things like that. Um, so why, why do you suppose we, you know, with all the dinosaur dig sites and, and paleo, or paleontology, paleontology that occurs in the United States, why do you suppose we, we've not run into um, a, 
some perhaps a, a, a remain, I guess. Right, right, exactly. Well, uh, you know, obviously fossilization is, is, is extremely capricious and, and, you know, the, the conditions need to be conducive. We, we discussed a little bit about the, um, the porcupine bias of the Gigantopithecus fossil record. Right. I mean, you know, here, here is an ape that uh, had a tenure of existence in East Asia for 1.5 million years. And yet we have to show for that two jaws and a few thousand isolated teeth, which isn't much at all. Um, and, and, and nothing else. I mean, not a single other postcranial bone. It's just, it's, it's just hard to imagine otherwise. But, and, and you pointed out and in your introduction, we recently, or it was recently discovered of, of, of the first fossil of a, of a gibbon, uh, at least a radius. Um, and, uh, uh, but if we had had this conversation just a couple of years ago, we'd be saying, well, there, gee, there are no fossils of gibbons. Yeah, that's so there's true. always discoveries. Discovery is an ongoing process, and especially in paleontology. Okay, so, so give, give me that. Um, so yeah, likewise- I'm with you on that. Tophonomy right, right. <laughs> so, so, so what is Sasquatch? I mean, is it, is it a Gigantopithecus extant or is it something else? Is, uh, you know, we, we would never have thought that there was a late Australopithecine early habiline in Southeast Asia until a few years ago. Yeah. And so that tells us that there is a huge gap in our understanding of the dispersal of those species from, I mean, the source presumably is Africa. And, so and I, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I wanna add something, I guess, to that. To that. Yep case, I suppose, because you're right. I mean, we're looking at places like Flores um, and uh, um, I forget, Luzon, Luzon, I believe, or Luzonensis. Yeah. Luzonensis. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, these early members of Homo, you know, if we want to put them in Homo, which I know some folks are like, eh, we got some yeah. basic <laughs> stuff going on here. Um, and, and I would agree with that. And I think that it's a great point that it's like, okay, you know, we've got Pabellins and Australopithecines chilling out, um, minding their own business in Africa, and then we've got them showing up in Flores and we don't find them along the way, perhaps because we're not looking for them in those locations. Right. Well, I would suppose, true. though, the only the only pushback I would give on that is that, unlike those areas that kind of dot that line up through kind of the Middle East and through Southeast Asia and then down, you know, through um, through those the kind of Southeast Asian Peninsula off into the, the islands out there, I think that we tend to give we we've developed areas of the United States along the pathway from like say the Bering Strait or some along those lines um, that would be more conducive to fossilization because we've just got the, the absolute pleasure of having so many different kinds of biomes here in, in the States and in Canada and North America. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking, you know, it's almost like we have been looking and the areas that would have fossilized them either by sheer bad luck uh, or because there wasn't one aren't fossilized, we aren't finding the remains there. Um, do you suppose maybe it was just because because my immediate pushback on myself is like, okay, well, maybe they weren't there for very long. Like, what are your thoughts on the range yeah. upon arriving in North America? Right. Well, well, we know that there were periods of time uh, uh, that uh, where, where the land bridge was contiguous forest, forested habitat. So the forested habitats are not themselves going to be good conducive environments right. for fossilization. And then, of course, there was uh, more land exposed with the lowering of the sea level, which now is inundated. 
And so right. that's probably eliminated some other potential sources. I mean, the most likely place to find remains would be, in my mind, in, in limestone caves and along the western coastline. And it happens that there is someone. Uh, Tim Heaton is uh, a uh, at the South Dakota School of Mines. I think I'm getting that right still. Uh, whose specialty is excavating Pleistocene deposits in, in uh, limestone caves in southeastern Alaska. And he's excavated dozens of these caves now, you know, all the way down to the bedrock. And so he's sampling hundreds of thousands of years. And yet, in all those excavations, he's got just a handful of bear fossils. Right. You know, so he's saying, you know, tens of thousands of bears have come and gone, come and gone. But that's the representation we have. I, I posed this question to him. First of all, I said, you know, have you ever come upon anything that even remotely resembled a primate? <laughs> and he said, no, no, we haven't. But and I said, uh, assuming for just a moment, for the sake of argument, that there's a very real possibility that Sasquatch exists. Would it surprise you that you haven't found fossils? He said, oh, no, not at all. He said the 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 uh, preservation in these caves is so biased and so you know uh, particular to and and some particular in some instances to 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 filtering and so forth, but also in some cases quite serendipitous uh, that it doesn't surprise me in the least that we haven't, uh, especially something that may have only been in on the continent for you know a few tens if not hundreds of thousands of years. So oh, I think they're fairly recent. Late. I think they're, yeah, I think they're potentially fairly recent interlopers. Um, now, what does that say for, for um, uh, you know, Asia, if, if they've been, had a longer tenure there, perhaps, as, as suggested by, or I mean, their presence there is, is I think, very real. I mean, the, uh, the uh, slam dunk evidence for me was when um, I, was able to examine these footprint casts from uh, Shenzhia and they showed the, you know, the remarkable pressure ridge absolutely comparable to the, to the examples here, especially the one from, from the Patterson Gimlin film site. That, and, that, and that's a perfect lead in. Cause I want to ask you about the trackways. Cause yeah. I know that's like, that's your bread and butter. That's the, your area of expertise. And like, I, I totally <laughs> defer to you, to you on that. And one thing, side note, I do, I want to, Sorry, I totally interrupted you. No, that's uh, all right. That's all right. Made the I, point. I just got excited because I was like, ah, yes, I, I really wanted to ask you. It's so reading your book, and I, I have a black and white copy, so I, it was difficult for me to make out like the the proposed dermatoglyphs, um, oh, right. the ridges, and I found some of them quite compelling. I, I was looking at some, and I was like, this is very interesting. This is this is quite strange. I don't have a ready explanation for it. Which, mm -hmm. You know, doesn't mean Sasquatch, but at the same time, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. And then some of them, I was, I was kind of like, I, I don't know, you know, not my field. This is your era, so if you propose them, I'm sure that you know, you know what you're talking about. Uh, but to me, they almost looked like mud cracks or, or you know, um, drying agents or, or things like that. The more cross-sectiony looking ones that were, they had the less of the whorls and more of the crosshatch almost. Sure, sure. Well, um, that that. What's in the book needs to be uh, revised a little bit because some things became apparent after the book was published. Uh, there are some examples, and we had our suspicions, but but it became as we did some more experimentation, it became very very evident. I had observed a, a phenomenon. Uh, we, we were doing some experiments with um, uh, the transfer of dermatoglyphics to 
very fine substrates. We were actually trying to determine if indeed you could transfer pore details, the pores on the ridges to these very fine substrates. And so we were experimenting with talcum powder and flour and lus from, from the soils around here, which are very similar to those in Southeastern Washington, uh, which also has a very high lus content that uh, makes, it's, it's just so extremely fine. And yes, we could transfer that kind of detail. But in the process we found as we were doing some of our experiments, when you would pour plaster, especially if it was about ready to kick, it was just about ready to set up. If you poured it into this very dry substrate like the lus, it would suck that little, just enough moisture out to cause it to kick. And then it's just like if you've ever made pancakes on a hot griddle right. and you're pouring the batter and it, 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 it's, it fries, it cooks, and then it overflows as you're pouring and that cooks and then the next, and you get these alternating bands. Like hot magma almost or lava. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and that was, I think, happening in some of the examples that were taken in Northern California on a hot, dusty logging road. Um, there was the superimposition of dermatoglyphics, or of dermatoglyphic-like features that were merely artifacts of using hot water to mix the plaster, which they caution you not to do, <laughs> but they, you know, it was just water that was sitting out in their water jug. That's right. all they had to work with. And then they were pouring that into this pulverized logging road dust that was sucking it out and causing this, uh, this alternating banding pattern, which was not real dermatoglyphics. In contrast, the one that the, the example that I drew attention to um, in the book that had, which uh, Grover had referred to it as wrinkled foot because it had this very coarse dermatoglyphics, very extensive distribution, not just peripheralized as in these others from California. And in this case, it was under cold conditions, saturated soils, uh, but the same lust, but now very clay because it's wet. And um, uh, Officer Jimmy Chilcutt, the latent fingerprint examiner who came to my lab and examined these things was especially impressed with these because there was clear evidence of uh, healed scars that had interrupted the, the ridge pattern and caused kind of a herringbone, like taking a thread on a, on a, on a uh, corduroy fabric and pulling on it. It, pull, it causes the, this disruption right. in, the, in the pattern. He showed those, we, we took some latex peels of those features and Jimmy had just finished a recertification uh, workshop on uh, specialized on focusing on um, scars as identifying characteristics in dermatoglyphics. Took him back to his instructor and showed him these and he said, oh yeah. He said, that's textbook uh, scar tissue, and those are real dermatoglyphics, <laughs> not knowing where they came from. Yeah. <laughs> but then he told him, and he, and he was all the more intrigued rather than put off by it. So, so there was some qualification in, in that, and there, there was a, an investigator, um, uh, who was it now? I can't think of his name. He went by the moniker, The Tube, online. But uh, I, I'm embarrassed now that I can't remember his name. But anyway, he had drawn some attention and did some experiments and showed how you could uh, create artifacts. And, and he was right. I mean, he was right as it pertained to that particular example, set of examples. But we've had repeated examples that show 
uh, clearly show dramatoglyphics. And uh, I, I think it's a real feature and, and to be expected. It's just extremely rare because you have to have precisely the right conditions to transfer the dramatoglyphics to the print. It has to survive long enough for someone to discover it. And then right. someone that has the wherewithal to pour pour the plaster. I mean, if it's a dry, dusty print, you pour plaster in that, it's pretty much going to obliterate it unless you consolidate it with a like a lacquer hairspray or something. And sure. so, uh, you know, in all my 300 plus footprint casts, there's only maybe a dozen that have even a trace of dramatoglyphics in them. Right. And and you you met, you mentioned it briefly. I want to make sure I was understanding you correctly. Um, is is there a way to get dermatoglyphics without an act? Like, could they be an artifact of something else? Well, you know, there, there's been a lot of debate about that. If you go into some of the old texts, you know, they they look at examples like wave pattern, uh, su submarine wave patterns in the sand. I mean, because it's it's not exactly clear what dictates. There, there's a certain genetic element. But then there are those who say that there's also a nature uh, element that, that the conditions in utero actually cause the coalescence of the little papillae that form around the sweat uh, pores that coalesce into the, the linear patterns. And so, um, you know, when Chilcutt was first visiting with me and talking, he, he said there are characteristics, you know, um, ending loop or ending lines, included lines, loops, swirls, you know, and so forth that uh, determine that that are the criteria by which he determines real print patterns. Um, and he thought he could identify some of those characteristics in the what, what we now think are artifactual features. So it's not as black and white, clear cut, uh, an argument to be made. And so, you know, the dermatoglyphics are one aspect, one interesting feature that may hold some interesting insights. They're restricted in their distribution and, and patterns to the point that they're not extremely informative about populations or about, you know, other aspects. But, uh, but when they're present, uh, they're on footprints that display gross anatomy that is absolutely compelling. Uh, and even if the dramatoglyphics were gone, the, you know, like the wrinkle foot, the, it, it, it's almost a distraction because then people quibble over whether they're legitimate or not, or re artifactual or real or factual. And uh, the anatomy of the footprints itself is so compelling. Right. Yeah. You're, you're saying you miss, you, you, by looking at the dramatoglyphics, you almost missed the plot. Of right. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I that, that actually leads me to a, a question that I, I want to ask. I alluded to this kind of in my presentation because you know, when I was looking at some of the pictures in the book, I, I know similarities between a lot of the footprints, of course, you know, you've always got this right. inline helix that's in line with the rest of the toes. Right. Um, and and typically they're, you know, within, I, you had a great uh, chart in there that was like, we've got this nice normal distribution of uh, general sizes and dimensions of some of these feet. But I kind of wanted to ask you, because you, you alluded to this in, in the text that a lot of these guys, uh, in your experience from the cast that you've made, they appear to be, to be very flat-footed. Yes. Does that, and I don't know very much about foot morphology, does that lend itself to the terrain that these guys are living in? Well, ter terrain and the body size. I mean, the, the longitudinal arch is a fairly recent innovation in human evolution. 
the, our, our immediate predecessor, Homo heidelbergensis, does have evidence. I had the privilege of examining the most complete fossil foot skeletons of a non-Neanderthal uh, hominin, non-human, non-Neanderthal hum, uh, uh, hominin, namely Homo heidelbergensis, uh, the uh, uh, specimen, uh, Lai Shu uh, specimen in, in China. And it clearly has an arch, but it's a low arch in a very broad, robust foot compared to ours, much, much more akin to Neanderthals. I mean, I think we and Neanderthals inherited an arched foot from that common ancestor, but we have then further modified the foot to a very gracile skeleton with a much more accentuated longitudinal arch and a shortening of the calcaneus. So the input to output ratio is, is a speed lever system rather than a power lever. And we have shortened our toes even more uh, by comparison to Neanderthals. Uh, a Neanderthal foot has some distinctions. I mean, not just the robusticity of the skeleton, but their toes are a little bit longer on average and their heel is noticeably longer on average. Um, the heel bone. So anyway, uh, back to your point, the Sasquatch has never evolved an arch and uh, given its massive size, it would not be advisable to concentrate plantar pressures beneath those points between beneath the heel and the ball of the foot. So they have, they distribute weight out over the entire foot. Uh, Grover Krantz actually did a really nice breakdown in his where he tried to see, can you can, are the, uh, the uh, compressive forces uh, per unit area of the sole of the Sasquatch foot comparable to those of human? You know, in other words, are they functionally uh, comparable? And, and there's, there's some, you know, uh, it's not as, as straightforward as that. I mean, how do you account then for the arch? Do you take a, a footprint with just the contact surface of the human, which is what I think he did? Uh, you know, eliminating the parts of the sole that were not in contact with the, with the substrate. But uh, one thing he didn't include, and, and, and for that he accounted for the great breadth of the foot. And I think I discussed that thoroughly in the book too, where yeah. data has been collected of breadth to length ratios. And when you plot that against, uh, you know, humans and Sasquatch, they, they're two separate clouds altogether. Yeah, but they, they do group uniquely. Yeah, I remember that as well. I remember yeah. that. And, and so that, that's interesting in, in and of itself. I mean, as, as a distinguishing characteristic, I think lends credibility to the sample. The other thing that, that Grover didn't bring up, though, is the behavioral aspect as well, how a, a, an animal that massive can tolerate those kind of compressive forces on the foot. And it's through the compliant gait. You, you mentioned how you were impressed with how this how Patty moves so fluidly and smoothly across that screen was well, because she's, she's walking as if we would walk with flexed hips and knees and, and, uh, and ankles. And, and, and so you don't see this head bobbing as she's walking across. Well, that's what uh, they call in, uh, in biomechanic literature, the Groucho walk it kind of predates some of our younger listeners, but Groucho Marx, you know, his trademark, uh, with his with his little cigar or big cigar up here, he would bend way down and he would walk with very flexed legs, and so um, by doing that, it um, it reduces ground reaction forces by as much as twenty percent. So if you've already got a flat, wide foot, 
you don't have a heel strike and a toe off. Instead, you walk with the foot tending to land rather flatly. So you immediately distribute weight over the entire surface instead of concentrating it under the heel and, and concentrating it at a peak when we push off through our toes. Um, you combine that with a very compliant gait as well, and you can reduce those ground reaction forces down to where uh, they're tolerable to the tissues. Now, the Sasquatch also, I think, has a, a substantial sole pad uh, with fatty tissue, um, uh, not extreme, but it's bigger than ours. And that's evidenced by um, a number of examples, but one in particular, uh, one footprint example where it stepped on a stone and it, uh, its sole pad was able to accommodate that projecting stone to a remarkable degree didn't just push it down into the ground right 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 do you um because i've got this is kind of like my working around kind of what i was thinking when i was um when i was reading um but i thought it was quite interesting like i i really found that that distribution that normal distribution graph fascinating yeah. Um, because my my question was when I was you know you've seen these pictures they they float around of the of the Sasquatch feet right and they tend to be when you see them out of context amongst one another you just put it into Google Images you see them there's just an astounding variety uh, right. between the right. ones you can just pull off off the cuff right um, yeah. not not to the ones necessarily that you find in your text which I would absolutely say share more than what you would find just upon like a, a again a cursory Google search yeah. Um, but my question, I guess, would be, and, and I, I'm kind of thinking as I go here, you've got this topography of a foot, right, That's that falls within a certain range to give you that normal distribution curve. Do you think, could you entertain the idea, I guess, that the reason that that would be is because people have this cultural idea of what Bigfoot is, and then they've got this idea of a range of feet that are actually feasible to, to hoax, as it were? Or in your opinion, is it just too well done the, the, the um, consistency, I suppose. Right. Well, if, if we're talking about the, the length, the, the size dimensions first, then I would expect if there was a preponderance of hoaxes, they would tend to be people who, as you said, would expect a Bigfoot to be at least this big, you know. A Bigfoot, right. And so it would be a skewed distribution. Right. Uh, you know, skewed away from those with uh, with a 16, 17 inch range. Instead, yeah. Instead, we get that that bell curve that that suggests a, a biological population with a distribution of size across across that population. If we're talking about shape, form, topography, then um, then, yeah, I mean, the, the same thing occurred to me. My my cursory experience uh, gave me the impression that everyone looked kind of unique and uh, and no two were the same and i thought to myself well <clears throat> if these are real if there's a real uh, population out there it must be very rare in, in order you know for it to be as elusive and and to be seen so infrequently <clears throat> if they are as rare as i suspect they must be then if tracks are found in a given area over a period of time it should be one of a few individuals. We should see repeat appearances right. of recognizable individual members of that. Right. Okay. Right. I, right. I actually think you mentioned that in the book too. The you yeah. have three prints kind of in quick succession that are supposed to be from the same individual. Yeah. And I, so I started looking for examples of that. You know, even Patty, 
you know, uh, people argued that she was never seen before or since. I mean, meaning her footprints were never seen before or since. But those people were not taking into account differences in substrate. Your footprint when you walk on a hard pan logging road with a thin layer of dust are going to look different than when you walk on a fine grained sandbar over dry or, or slightly moistened by the, by the periodic rains of the time that day, um, uh, sand. And uh, if you take those into account, I mean, if you just line, say you line up the imprints and line up the deepest point on the tips of the toe or the uh, pads of the toes, the deepest point across the distal end of the foot, the central point of the, of the heel, if you line up the tracks like that, then uh, it, ignoring the slight variations due to expansion or, or, or lack of expansion of the soft tissues, they line up and I showed dozens of examples of tracks that were 15, 14, 14, 15 inches long that, that could easily be Patty's footprints from that region prior to and afterward. You you present one thing in the book Maybe that- Maybe one more question from you, Erica. And, okay, and sorry. we'll go to Q&A. Listen, I, I know Dr. Meldrum is going to get so many questions too from the, uh, from the audience. I know most of the questions are going to be from- and that happened last time. So I suspect I'm going to use that opportunity to actually use the restroom if that's okay. But I want to ask one question before we go, um, before we end, I guess, on the formal discussion. Because you have one example in your book of this idea of, you know, you talk about the, uh, the, the classic bare hind limb. It's got this kind of vaguely human-esque shape, hominid-esque shape. And you have this one picture of a, um, a, a bare hind limb that kind of had the or front limb that then had the hind paw kind of step on the front half and it gives oh, right. it this yeah over it right and you, Re you registered. registered yes that's the word do you think how many do you think could actually be attributed to that kind of process not very many is that quite rare uh, or no yeah not not very many because you know and, and as i discuss in the book and as i illustrate in my field guide and so forth there are there are a very distinctive um, uh, characteristics that that whether it's the the hind paw overstepping the right. forepaw or vice versa or just coming up close to the forepaw depending on the speed, there are features that that stand out that that uh, right. that uh, distinguish those, and um, so I, I've not encountered a lot of examples uh, where those have been mistaken. Most people are observant enough that they the pick up on that and can tell the difference. Usually, and, you know, I think nails as well, quite briefly. Well, right. And that's not a foolproof. Some some people will swear, oh, if there aren't if there aren't claws, then it can't be a bear. Well, that's not true. There right. I can show you examples. And, and people can people can educate themselves. You know, the 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 marvel of the internet, you can Google bear tracks and create your own um, uh, photographic archive of example after example and start to, as you in, and develop that search image and see the distinguishing characteristics. You can read the things that I've written. There are, um, uh, you know, lots of sources of, of, of such information. It's not, and I, and I don't want, I hate to diminish it because there is a certain knack, but it's not rocket science, right. you know, with just a little bit of training, I do workshops. And by the time these people come out of these hour workshops, they can tell the difference between a bear track and a, and a human track and a Bigfoot track. You know? Right, right, right. So okay, cool. uh, they're pretty straightforward. Cool. Okay.
So that was a blast. I, James, is it cool if I use the restroom while he, because I know the first question is going to be a friend. Sure, that's fine. Right. Right. I'll it be is. right back. <laughs> I want to remind you folks that our guests are linked in the description. We highly encourage you to check out their links as we appreciate our guests very, very much. And so this one coming in from Chris Gammon. Thanks so much, said for both. That's funny. That was the only one that actually said for both. So we'll, we'll jump back to that one. We've got from Rory Borkman. Thanks for your kind words. Says, thanks so much for hosting these debates. It's our pleasure. And folks, we, we pay the forward. We pay the thank you forward to our guests as we really, they're the lifeblood of the channel. We appreciate them. And so again, they're linked below. Thanks, Rory. Harry White says, question for all three of you. Wow. That's, so, that's funny, but we'll wait until Erica gets back. Sigifredo Sarabia. Thank you for your question for Dr. Meldrum says if, and sometimes these are a little bit uh, challenging. Sigifredo likes to keep me on my toes. I think it's, they're saying if hominids branched away to make room for Bigfoot, where is Bigfoot's Yeti cousin? Where is your cutoff for evidence where Bigfoot's not subjected? Not sure. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know if I can uh, ferret out a, a sensible question from that. With all due respect, um, I, I don't know what he means by. I, I mean, we're we're talking about uh, a bushy, very bushy hominoid tree, and and many of those branches, the majority of them have, uh, with the exception of, if we include the uh, you know the great apes and lesser apes the uh, uh, radiation of, of uh, gibbons and siamongs and the orangs and the chimps and gorillas um, on the hominin side, uh, presumably all other branches have gone extinct. But the question is, have they? I mean, it, we, we have more and more evidence accumulating of very recent persistence of, of a number of these species like Homo floresiensis and Homo heidelbergensis and uh, Neanderthals and even Homo erectus in Southeast Asia. Um, I mean, the dates kind of the, the opinions seem to vacillate, but there have been opinions as recently as uh, as 25,000 years ago, regardless of whether it's 25 or 75, they just dredged up a jaw, which was attributed to Homo uh, erectus off the coast of Taiwan and dated it to about 10,000 years ago. So between 10 and 30,000 years ago, there were a half a dozen different hominin species alive in East, in East Asia. Why, in the face of so much interesting evidence suggesting there might be something still persistent, some relic hominoids, would we eliminate that possibility when that was the rule rather than the exception throughout all of the history of hominin evolution? Gotcha. So on that one, now as far as Yeti and... Um, you know, as I suggested, these are, are separate branches, and um, uh, there are different arguments to be made for or against each of those different types of relic hominoid. The, you know, honestly, the Yeti argument on the basis of footprints is turns out to be extremely limited. I did an in-depth review of the footprint evidence attributed to the Yeti and boiled it down after eliminating the the totally indeterminate, unintelligible, sublimated <laughs> blobs. Uh, there was a large number of bears. There's obviously a lot of conflation in the lore and in the legend and fact about uh, between bears and, and yeti, uh, bears and hominoids, that is. 
uh, involved in Yeti, it boiled down to two examples of potential hominoid. Well, two, maybe three. One is the Shipton footprint, which has its quirks and maybe anomalous, which is unfortunate because it, you know, but then there's the, which should be the poster child, the iconic footprint for the Yeti is the McNeely Cronin expedition documentation of, of what looked like chimpanzee footprints in the snow. And, and then um, uh, there was another book, a more obscure um, example by uh, a man named Hutchinson, uh, a journalist, a travel journalist who witnessed what he thought were Yeti footprints. And they bear a remarkable resemblance to the McNeely um, prints. And in fact, I've been encouraging him to write up some of his, his uh, experiences uh, for more recent consumption, more uh, current consumption. Hmm. Um, anyway, the point is, uh, there, there's, um, he, he mentioned Yeti in there somewhere. I don't know if I addressed his, his question or not. You got it. And it actually relates to another question, which is a, a fun one. Thank you, Luke Stevens, for your question. Asks, big fan of, thanks, by the way, for your kind words. It says, big fan of the channel. Appreciate it. And they said, question, Dr. Meldrum. So we, we did get to hear your thoughts on the Yeti, but I, they asked, do you believe in other cryptozoological creatures such as the Loch Ness Monster or Megalodon in modern oceans or Chupacabra? Yeah. Well, I, I, I do uh, you know, harbor an interest in cryptozoology. I, I am reluctant to allocate the study of Sasquatch to cryptozoology. I, I don't look, approach it as a cryptozoologist. I approach it as an anthropologist. Uh, cryptozoology, unfortunately, has always struggled for legitimacy. And, uh, and unfortunately, many of the cryptids are, are very uh, skeptical or uh, dubious in nature. The Chupacabra, for example, uh, again, my area is footprints. And so at one time, a documentary crew came to the lab with a the, in their opinion, a bona fide chupacabra footprint. <laughs> and uh, so anticipating, based on the cursory description I was given, I, I lined up on the bench top uh, uh, footprint casts of, of wolves and a couple of domestic, large domestic dogs and coyotes and bobcats and puma. And uh, out comes their, their cast, and it was very canine looking. And so, you know, we just kind of moved the track up and down the scale. I almost felt like going ding, 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 But it was a domestic dog. In fact, it was identical. It was like a clone of my example, which was just a dog that I, a dog print that I cast up on the hillside where the people walk their dogs. And this one ran through the mud and it dried in a very pristine footprint. And so it was a great comparative example for my collection and this could have been its its twin sibling it was so similar so um you know there's just you've got to go with the evidence and uh uh you know qualified objective evaluation of the eyewitness testimony and unfortunately there's a i mean there, there's a lot of the the popular crypto cryptids that uh, that don't uh, hold up under scrutiny very well. Gotcha. That's interesting. And another somewhat related question. This is for both of you. Uh, actually, this one is Harry White. Thanks for your question. So for all three of you, UFOs, what's 
going on? I don't know if they're meaning the most recent videos being released. Yeah. I haven't, I'm actually a little bit behind, so I haven't really seen them. I really honestly have no idea on this question. So I'll, short and sweet, I'll kick it over to you. Erica, I guess we can start with, and then we'll kick it over to Dr. Meldrum. Yeah, there's there's a couple of weird there's a couple of weird things on this world that we live on that I I just I feel so out of my depth to even comment on. I mean I I see some of the some of the stuff that they put out there of, of these you know crafts or whatever that looks like a balloon and then you know you see others uh, they're from someone who's you know in the navy or whatever and a bunch of them saw something strange and and I find it particularly compelling when large groups of people simply say that like we saw something weird and we don't know what it is and isn't that what an unidentified flying object is? Uh, so I give that one UFOs a hearty. I have no idea what's going on there, and I will leave that to the folks that uh, that have even a clue of how you know aerodynamics and non-ballistic slash ballistic motion works. So I'm just going to leave that one to them. It is interesting that the Pentagon was talking about it recently, though. That is kind of funny. I'm not sure what to make of that. Right. Well, and the the report is due out here in a couple of weeks, if not. I don't know if what, what the date in June, but sometime in June, the report is supposed to be released. And, and uh, those supposedly in the know keep saying that their sources are telling them this is going to be a real serious announcement. And uh, that there are, the, the, the official term is not UFO, it's UP, uh, UAP. Yeah. Un, unknown aerial phenomenon. Well, there's... Uh, there's it's very funny to me, you know, I mean, like, it, it's really easy, and I think that this applies to, to the, the Bigfoot stuff, too. It's very easy to see a bad example and write every sub, sub right. example off as something similar. Right. But I think it's important, you know, whether or not UFOs and Sasquatch both do or don't exist, it's important to, you know, appreciate everything in and of itself, and then also with the preponderance of everything. Right. Uh, that you've got. And I do find it very interesting that the, uh, the at least here in the United States, you know, the, the, the government keeps doing this thing where they're like, UFOs are fake. We don't, you know, we're not doing anything with them. And then 10 years later, they had some, you know, project where they were looking into them. And then you're kind of just like, okay, right. why then? If, if, yeah. if there's nothing going on. I mean, it may be, it could be as simple as someone, some other countries got way cooler toys than we right. do. Yeah. Right. Um, but <clears throat> no, yeah, it is. I would just add that uh, that regardless of the outcome, I'm I'm it won't necessarily draw a line connecting two dots between Sasquatch and UFOs. <laughs> I and mean, that's been suggested by many repeatedly over the years. And I've I've never seen anything to substantiate that kind of uh, connection. Uh, yeah. You know, any more than the bear that you see in your backyard when you happen to see a UFO overhead. Does it didn't come from the UFO? I, assuredly, I I've seen some some bonkers stuff out there about that. Because you know, as someone who's also involved in anthropology and primatology, like engaging with this idea that you know there there are undiscovered animals in this world of ours, which there there most certainly are. What those animals look like is to be determined, right? But that's a completely different story than. Sasquatch is an interdimensional being, man, and like he, he took me up in his ship, dude. It right. was awesome. It's just like those are two different <laughs> yeah, conversations. You know, I I always say those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, and and I and I try to be open minded, and I have accepted invitations to come out to areas where such phenomenon are supposedly transpiring, only to be 
unfortunately disappointed. I, I, I pressed one gentleman who was just adamant that he had witnessed orbs and, and did witness them repeatedly. And I said, well, have you ever snapped pictures of them? Oh, yes. Well, can you send me your best example? So he did. He sent me a, a, a scan of one of his uh, photos. It was a sh night shot with a flash camera uh, through the pollen that was coming down. Oh each of God. these reflective pieces of pollen was an orb, you know, and I've experienced that myself. I was in Colorado when the ponderosa pines were, were just uh, pollen was blowing everywhere. And when you'd go out of the trailer to go out to your tent and you turn on your headlamp, you couldn't see. It was like a whiteout because all you could see was this illuminated pollen blowing around. And if that's what people are equating with orbs, you know. Yeah. Back to, uh, you know, what, what is the, what are the data? Do you really, are we really talking about the same thing? And in many cases we're not. So. Oh yeah. Yep. That's funny. And this one coming in for both Chris Gammon, thanks for your question said, seems to me such a large animal with enough population to continue propagating would leave easily discoverable evidence of their existence. This has probably been kind of covered on and off throughout but if you want to add anything we'll give you yeah, a chance I'll, I'll add something the you know the the notion of minimal minimal viable population or minimum viable population is often brought up you know there have to be enough to reproduce but if you do a little research even just google minimum viable population and see what, what wikipedia has to say there's a pretty interesting little entry and it it, it acknowledges that that's a concept that's really nebulous and the only way to really, I mean, I mean the, the, the concern there is as to what constitutes a minimum viable population is what's the genetic load? What, because uh, if, if you have inbreeding, then you have a tendency for deleterious recessive alleles to, to combine and crop up, right? So the more presence of deleterious mutations in a population, the, the, the larger the gene pool needs to be to avoid those, those uh, homozygous recessives from, from cropping up. If, and so the only way to know then what is the minimum viable population for a species is to do extensive genetic testing, which, which isn't done. To, except in rare occasions. To your to your credit, there too. Um, one of one of my colleagues from my my Amherst program, or a, a colleague now, I suppose, she came and spoke at our program. She works with the Heinen Gibbon populations mm -hmm. uh, on the island of Heinen, and there's thirty odd individuals left of that entire species. Right. And they are they've done some work genetically, and because there's two very small but genetically distinct populations, they might just be able to bring this species back. It's 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 iffy. But I mean, 30 individuals, that's, that's pretty small. And you know, you've got inbreeding issues, of course, and they're going to be extremely vulnerable to disease and, and you know, unless, um, unless we intervene, I guess, genetically or, or whatever, but viable populations, that's that, I mean, that, that is a, a variable game to play. Right. And so I was going to add to that example of yours, mountain gorillas went down through a bottleneck where there were less than 200. Yep. And they uh, are on the rebound now. There's just uh, under a thousand, and they have been genetically studied, and it and and it resulted in a paper that described that some species have adapted to bottlenecks and uh, uh, fluctuations in population numbers, and and their their gene pool is pretty darn clean. 
you know, it may be that your gibbons rebound and then over time they will accumulate variation that naturally occurs without any genetic intervention. But uh, but but natural selection has has actually produced these populations. So if you go to that Wikipedia entry, what they give is kind of a rule of thumb for vertebrate species. What a broad category, huh? Vertebrate species, a thousand individuals is probably a minimum rule of thumb. Well, if we've got you know three thousand, two thousand in North America, that's far exceeds the minimum viable population rule of thumb. And so I don't think you can resort to that argument to say there would have to be enough that they would naturally leave sign that you're just gonna stumble upon. I mean, we've got 35,000 black bear in Idaho. Uh, go for a hike in Idaho. You're not gonna stumble upon signs of black bear everywhere you go. You know, I've, I've only seen black bear in the wild one, uh, well, and I'll, I'll exclude sightings in the national park, but only uh, uh, twice in all the time I've spent in the field. I found tracks, I've found some sign, you know, scratch marks, uh, uh, foraging signs, but I've only seen a black bear twice. So, uh, you know, I think we overestimate our ability to keep our finger on the pulse of every species that's out there. <laughs> Super interesting. Thanks so much. And then this one coming in from Sigifredo Sarabia for Erica says, what limitations in evolutionary theory conclude hominids were the exclusive choice for the modern human while discriminating against Bigfoot? I don't know if I understand that, but maybe you do. Uh, no, I don't think I claim that there were any. I mean, the the, the idea that your, your anatomically modern humans descend from hominids is supported by just about every line of evidence that, that, that you can have. Um, I mean, you've got biogeographic support for this, you know, out of Africa, Ethiopia-ish location. Of course, the, the, the genetic similarity of humans to uh, the rest of the great apes and very specifically to uh, chimpanzees who themselves have this nice biogeographic uh, support for, for a common ancestor right around the East African Rift, right around that location. Um, and, and that's kind of why the question of Bigfoot is very interesting to me, because I, I've always thought uh, that, that it seems very paranthropine in nature to me, which is a, a sister group to um, the Australopithecines. And uh, this organism differs from the Australopithecines in that uh, it's got these huge megadont molars, a nutcracker man. Oh, he's got these, these molars that are four times the size of an adult human, and yet they are physically um, like shorter, worse, smaller, quote unquote, than, than your average anatomically modern homo sapiens. Which is really interesting because these guys just spent all their time, you know, grinding these teeth of theirs as they as they ate hard foodstuffs, and um, and they had these big, beautiful sagittal crests on the tops of their heads, and and were probably just fascinating orthognathic, weird-looking faces in comparison to the Australopithecines. They're just highly specialized, and you know, to, to me, I always thought that it seemed, in, uh, I guess, like a like a natural um, a natural link, sort of, if, if you will. Um, but I can I can entertain um, Gigantopithecus as well. I, th I think it's just harder because of our preconceptions as uh, folks in primatology and anthropology, because Gigantopithecus is so typically depicted as this massive quadrupedal orang, um, which is almost a little bit funny. I, to to Dr. Aldrin's credit, it is a little bit funny because you know orangutans are arboreal. These guys aren't like hanging around, knuckle walking over time. Uh, their their poor little back feet are you know in, inward turned because they're so suspensory adapted. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's also quite a bit easier to draw the lineage 
with humans, because humans, there are a ton of us. There's so much to work with with humans as far as what that lineage looks like and, um, and, and how we make those connections. Gotcha. Thanks. And this one, we'll read these two together because somebody sent in an answer, a possible answer to the question before the question came in. So the question is this. Bernamon G, thank you for your question, said... Oh, no, sorry. Amy Newman, thank you for your question, said, after show on this topic at my channel, and I, folks, want to let you know, after shows are linked in the description, as well as the question is for Dr. Meldrum, why do Bigfoots seem both massive and stealthy? Doesn't that mixture seem almost... Uh, it doesn't seem almost like an oxymoron to be massive and stealthy. And then someone else said, actual socialist trash. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> it says, uh, in Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi in the episode, Listen, wonders about an animal that has adapted perfectly to stealth. Could this be Bigfoot? In other words, this kind of radical adaptation in the, the stealth direction. But anyway, I thank you for that actual socialist trash. And the question, again, from Amy is, uh, kind of seems, Amy suggests maybe strange that it could be both so huge and yet stealthy. Well, uh, actually not, that, that's not incongruous at all. Um, and, and there are many examples you can point to. Uh, the forest elephant, you talk to people who have been out and observed the forest elephant, you can be 15 feet away from the elephant in that dense forest and not see it, not know where exactly where it's at. You can hear it maybe, but uh, there's a good book, uh, Garrett, Patterson has just written an excellent book about elephants, uh, sort of a relic population of elephants in South Africa. And he also mentions their traditions about a, a relic hominoid in Africa. One of the few, you know, it may be a, a relic Australopithecine, who knows, but uh, stories about it. But, but it illustrates, you know, his efforts to track these elephants, elephants we're talking about, and their elusivity. I mean, basically the only way they keep track of them is when they, they cross the roads and they can um, identify them by the diameter of their footprints or any distinguishing marks or scars on their footprints. Um, I, you know, I, yeah, yeah to, 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 to your credit on that one, and you know, I'm, I'm the skeptic side of this, but my skepticism from Bigfoot mostly comes from, from like the things we discussed earlier, fossil record, metabolism yeah. and stuff like that. But as to that point about big things being sneaky, uh, I've been around a couple of, of wild primates. One was chimpanzees, and they are—they can sneak up on you very easily. Okay. And you really don't want—you really don't want to—you really don't want to get sunk up by a chimp. Uh, but but almost in in a more interesting fashion was when I was uh, doing field work in Thailand. Uh, we we were out in the middle of nowhere checking camera game traps in this forest, and almost instantly we we looked up and you could look all around and anywhere you looked essentially there was a, a pigtailed macaque these they, it was a colony of about 90 of them and wow. they they came almost dead like almost silently like you almost noticed them because you sat up and you were like wait a second and then you know you can see him in the brush these guys aren't small i mean macaques can get pretty big the males can are intimidating they're yeah. large animals and just as quickly as they came, they they bailed out. They were just passing through, and they were kind of like, "What are these weird, you know, animals doing in our in our zone?" Where a French primatologist was there studying them, and she was like, "Oh, you saw them?" And we were like, "Yeah, we we saw them out there." And she's like, "I'm trying to find them all day." Yeah, um, that goes go. to show, big <laughs> even big animals that live in massive groups can be kind of sneaky. I mean, I don't I I think that there's reasons to be skeptical, but I, I don't know that big things can't be sneaky would be one of them. Right. Super interesting. And thank you for your question. Now, Baron Von G, appreciate it, said, all I'm going to say is if Bigfoot was here, wouldn't we at least find its teeth in particular? 
And if we haven't, I they they're kind of worried. Is is there? I'm new to like fossilization, or maybe this would be not fossilization, but preservation of just remains. Uh, teeth are they special in that they usually are they well preserved usually compared to everything else? The enamel, yeah, the enamel sure. makes them particularly robust. Oh, right. So you know, it's they're already they're already half fossilized. <laughs> the, the amount of material to be replaced by mineralization is is much smaller. So and uh, you know. They, they can survive being bounced around in a stream or uh, buried in the, in the sediments of a cave or whatever. That's super interesting. So, well, you know, and, and it goes back, we, we've, we've discussed this quite a bit. There, the, the capriciousness, the serendipity of fossilization is, is often underappreciated because we, we hear so many discoveries of, of, of uh, fossils, but it's, it's a fraction of not only the the uh, number the individuals of a species, but a fraction of the species. I mean, there there have been estimates, studies done comparing modern communities of, of various taxa with their uh, their paleo communities as represented in the fossil record. And if we can use the modern diversity as kind of a gauge for what we might expect to be, you know, by approximation in these paleo environments. Um, there was one study done by Bob Martin on, uh, you know, directed to primates, but it used other examples of other vertebrates. And, and they estimated that the primate fossil record right now only samples about 8% of the taxonomic diversity that actually existed in the past. 8%. I mean, even, you know, when you talk about hominin diversity, if, if uh, obviously when we're comparing monkeys to hominins, the natural history variables might be sufficient to say, well, that's, that's a far too uh, uh, conservative uh, or, or liberal an estimate. Even if you had doubled it or tripled it or quadrupled it, we've still only measuring 32%, one third of the actual diversity of hominins that were out there and, and you know, yet remain yet to be discovered. It's, so. it's, it's especially kind of to that point. Um, I mean, most of the excellently preserved hominins that we have uh, and hominids and hominoids that we have, I mean, really, you can go all the way back to all of the great primate preservations that we have um, are, are excellent luck. Uh, you know, your, your MH1 and MH2, Australopithecus sediva, you know, you've got nice preservation there, but by, by sheer chance almost. So same with some of our hominins that tend to fall into, you know, big pits and then or get yeah. carried by predators into caves or in the case of Oreopithecus, you know, we've got a, a, the, the coal miner uh, ape, you know, it's, it's it, again, fallen into some pit and been, and been preserved <clears throat> there. Um, I think it's, it's notable that we get massive communities of primates that live in enormous groups of the likes of Mandrillus sphinx or um, uh, um, Mandrillus uh, leucophaeus or the likes of our, our baboons or macaques live in huge groups. And it's not like you're walking around where they live and you're finding teeth all over the place. Um, that being said, that being said, I put a huge asterisk on there because my skepticism more comes from a place of like, okay, but we do know uh, that that when a large animal lives in a place, especially if it's still living, we do tend to pick up traces of it um, in in the like in more tangible ways. I would almost suppose, and and for me, it's it's always going to be like the fact that we do have all of these hominins in these locations that don't, I mean, they're better of course than, than the United States as far as, as your preservation goes, but 
even in like the the Miocene Europe, we're still finding critters turning up. Large, decent, you know, Hispanopithecus, um, things of that nature. Even like Lufbanepithecus, like getting over into more tropical areas. And so my what I'm dying for is like, where's our where's our Sasquatch? Where is it? Our, our one excellently preserved. This yeah. poor fella fell into a pit, you know, when right after the Bering Strait, and here it is. That would be superb. That would. Um, be. That would be. I, I would point out no, notably too that many of these species that we have, the the taxon, is represented by a single individual, or yeah. just a couple of individuals. And so you know, uh, every once in a while, uh, a new fossil is discovered. I mean, the the pace of discovery has continued almost unabated, and so uh, it, it may just be a matter of time when when uh, that. I I hope you're right. I, I, really I hope so do. too. You know. I really do. Because I again, I, I would love it. I really yeah. would. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. And then this one, combining these two, throw the dwarf of the house. Thanks for your question. Said, I never jumped the fence so much on a subject. And Ned said, do you think that Bigfoot is intelligent enough to be making the choice to keep away from humankind for its own safety? Could it be that it is actively hiding? Well, well, most most wild that's the definition of wild animals, isn't it? You don't have to have uh, hominin level intelligence to to uh, whether by conscious choice or instinct avoid human interaction. Um, you know that's that's what the the art of hunting is all about. These big bucks that have racks that suggest that they've survived dozens of hunting seasons. How do you think they do that? They, it's not just dumb luck. They intentionally avoid, they, they, you know, they, they seem to know when uh, the hunting season begins and they avoid every area. I, I read this story one time. This guy uh, actually observed this. He wasn't a hunter, but he was a keen observer of nature. And there was this little grove of trees in, uh, in the center of a highway turnabout. And he said every fall, this buck would disappear into that grove of trees only to reemerge about four weeks later when the hunting season was over. And he never got shot, you know, never got. So I don't think you have to invoke extraordinary intelligence to explain behaviors that are typical of, of just about every form of wildlife. Interesting. And then folks want to remind you, uh, or I should say, let you know for the first time, if you happen to send a super sticker or a joke or anything like that in a super chat, about my feet or anything like that. I will read it in the post credit scene. So I, I just want to respect the, the time of our guests. So I promise I'll read those. But as uh, in terms of sticking to the serious questions so that we can get our guests out of here at a decent time, I'm going to go to the next one. Farron Salas says, is it presumed that Bigfoot's laryngeal nerve takes the same absurd path through the body like in humans or giraffes? Thank you to the debaters and James. Thanks, Farron. You guys know about this laryngeal path yeah it's the recurrent laryngeal nerve which uh, <laughs> is a branch of the vagus nerve and uh it takes a, a route that in you know in fish it crosses uh one of the branchial arches uh which in us become is the aorta and so it it as the heart has dropped into the thorax it's drawn with it this nerve so it takes a this circuitous route, instead of going from the base of the skull to the intrinsic muscles of the larynx, it drops clear down around the aorta and back up. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, 
ah, terrible with names tonight. The uh, famous evolutionist actually recreated a demonstration that was first done by Darwin, where they dissected a, a giraffe to demonstrate the even more ridiculous path followed by this nerve up and down the entire length of the of the giraffe. It's, Given it's the fact, it's it's just that it's a classic like dunk on uh, folks who. Like to bring a bad design, right? It's a it's a young Earth creationist slash ID dunk, which I might have brought that upon us because I I debate so many creationists. Yeah, Richard Dawkins. That was who I was trying to. Yeah, think. Richard Dawkins. Yeah. If you Google Richard Dawkins and recurrent laryngeal nerve, there's a great little video clip that shows this dissection. But I would just say, since we have that arrangement, since since all vertebrates do, and and every great ape that I know of has that, then it it, it stands to reason that. That would be the arrangement in Bigfoot as well. Interesting. If it doesn't, maybe it did come from a UFO. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a great that'd be your great <laughs> proof for that. Right. <laughs> like proof of the of the interdimensional um, Sasquatch traveler. No laryngeal nerve. No yeah. Just just speak uh, communicate by telepathy. Right. Super interesting. And then EndoXD, thanks for your question. Said thoughts on Bigfoot videos. Are they convincing? And I know this did come up a bit, but I, well, I'll give you a chance to respond. Go ahead. If you want to well, add anything other than what was already said. Well, we, we concentrated on the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is head and shoulders above anything else. There are a few other ones there. In, in my book, I talk a little bit about the uh, Freeman footage. And, is it Memorial Day? Memorial and, the, Day? And, and the Memorial Day, which is a different one. Um, the Freeman footage is, is quite compelling and for, for a number of reasons, but there, I mean, there's a, a, a long litany of various uh, videos, um, clips, usually just short, short little snippets, no, nowhere near the, the 60 seconds of, you know, the whole 60 seconds of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Uh, there used to be a website, a Facebook page, I mean, um, I don't know if it's there anymore. It was called Facebook Find Bigfoot. And the... Uh, he, I mean, he, to his credit, he would he he would invite this submission and evaluate them, and he would develop a, a set of criteria by which he sort of ranked their potential credibility. Or, uh, and it was interesting when 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 you looked at just a run of his top twenty, anyone by itself was pretty pretty uh, you know uh, ambiguous, and um, but when you saw. Pat, the pattern that were repeated over and over, the, the set of the head on the shoulders, the way it uh, forward lean, the way the arms swung, the, the compliant gait, the high stepping, high lifting of the feet, you know, which would show up not consistently in all of them, but little snippets here and there scattered throughout. It, it made a kind of compelling case that there was this remarkable undercurrent of consistency to these little glimpses, and maybe there was something to it. But it also is a dramatic demonstration that most people are terrible photographers and uh, and most uh, most of a lot of the clips were photo bombs they were just they were shooting something else and and bigfoot happened to get up and walk out of frame or or walk across the frame or something on the on the horizon and and uh, very few of them were intentional uh, videos of bigfoot really interesting and Thank you for that as well as thanks for this question coming in from raw nakedness says there is a very small population of Sumatran orangutans with yeah, with, yeah. with 
high genetic diversity, only 7,000 individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the interesting about the interesting thing about um, uh, Pongo, the, the genus Pongo, is that you know you got these these guys separated on several different islands. They used to find them on the mainland too, in, in Malaysia, uh, but not not anymore, um, at least that we know of, um, or not typically, anyways. Uh, but the interesting thing is there there are unique differences, behavioral, cultural, if you will, and uh, morphologically between the different populations uh, and different species. Uh, I should say different species and different populations, even uh, on some of these islands. Uh, particularly, the main difference between the, the Bornean and Sumatran orangutan, which is very interesting, is the Sumatran one spends much more time up in the trees than the Bornean one does because they're still tigers on Sumatra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they think that perhaps it's this retained fear of, oh my gosh, like there actually is something that could take us out here other than people. Uh, and so they stick to the trees. So, but yeah. It, you know, O-ring, O-ring um, anecdote there. I just think they're cool. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And this one coming in from Cole Beasley says, you can Google big... Okay, I'll read that one later. <laughs> Next one. Harry White <laughs> says, Erica, if you were in the woods hunting and you saw Bigfoot and you had one chance to shoot it before it disappeared, would you? Yeah, I saw that one pop up in the side chat. I don't think <laughs> I could do it. I, I really don't think I could. I mean, and I know I, <laughs> Dr. Mellish was probably like, oh my God, it would... <laughs> It would be, we'd finally have like legit, no. legit support. No. I don't think I could do it. I really don't. No, I, I couldn't as well. Uh, that was, that was Dr. Krantz's and John Green's position. Uh, Krantz argued, you know, that, that it, it was justified in order to establish the existence and recognition. And then if, if they required uh, protection, then, then that would be forthcoming. But, um, you know, this will sound silly, but, but I had my, uh, my, reversal in thinking occurred uh, because I started out, I wrestled with that ethical question and convinced myself uh, as uh, Krantz did that, that it was necessary. And, and when I first began doing field work, we were, we were prepared and we were uh, uh, our intention was if the opportunity presented itself to do that. But then I had taken the kids to go see uh, the animated Tarzan movie. And there were these two characters <laughs> One was uh, uh, Clay- Clayton, the yeah. uh, safari leader, who shot at everything that moved. And, of course, he, he wanted to capture and exploit the gorillas. And then there was the dotting professor who was willing, in the end, to give up his entire career and his way of life in order to live with and study these magnificent creatures. And I had this, this little voice in the back of my head said, Jeff, which of these characters do you emulate right now? And, and that was, uh, that was the, the moment of, um, of introspection that caused me to say, well, what is my motivation? I don't need to prove anything to anybody. Um, and so my goal is to uh, learn and study, and we can, we can accomplish that through uh, uh, the uh, recognition we can, as a test case, if nothing else, through DNA. You know, and there is actually a growing literature of uh, arguing for the fact that especially in cases of rare and endangered species that we should be satisfied with a voucher DNA specimen rather than requiring uh, the conventional traditional type specimen to be lethally collected and stuffed in some museum drawer. So, um, so yeah, that's our, that's my approach now. And uh, no, I would not, I would not, I don't think I'd even be tempted. I hope, 
I wouldn't be tempted. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of motivation there, but but I think I've I've uh, come to terms with uh, with what it is I'm I'm uh, motivated by, and, and it's just to learn and to understand better. That's awesome. I'm not doing this, you know, I don't do this to try to, to uh, garner converts. I'm not proselytizing a belief. I'm arguing the evidence. I mean, my, my one argument, my principal argument is that the evidence is sufficient that we should be studying this question, not dismissing it. It, it galls me that when people like uh, Michael Shermer say the, says the science starts when you have a body. That is the most inane, unscientific statement anybody can make. The science starts, listen to me, the science starts when you have a question. That's when science begins, when you start to methodically collect observations and, and experimentation to understand and address and answer a question. And if you wait until there's a body, you ain't a scientist, period. You got it. Thank you very much. And this one coming in from Best in Show says, I think this is for you, Dr. Meldrum. They said, when visual sightings occur, wouldn't you expect Mrs. Bigfoot and Junior to be nearby? Why are they always, uh, why are the Bigfoots sighted alone so often? Well, I, I think they're solitary. I think that's that's their their adaptation. You could ask why are, why do, do orangutans choose to stay alone? I mean, it's it's their adaptation of, of social structure. We do have uh, numerous accounts of footprint trackways of females with offspring in tow. Even when when Patty was filmed, as was pointed out, the motivation for going down there was that there were tracks that were that were identified and it weren't, they weren't just hers, I believe, but she was in company with a 13 inch footprint set and an 11 inch. And I think those were young adults that were still hanging out with mom. Uh, she may even have had a babe in arms. You know, it's been suggested that those breasts you see look like they're uh, in postpartum engorgement, like she's nursing and uh, she may have recently given birth. And uh, so, Yes, there are, uh, it's not unusual for a, a species to be solitary, but there are also ample sightings of what have been taken to be females as evidenced by the breasts and or the presence of, uh, of offspring. The Memorial Day footage that's described in my book is, a, is ob almost certainly a female. It only stands about five foot seven uh, tall. And uh, when she's running down the hill, she has something on her back. And as she's running, that thing on her back starts to slip. And you see her, uh, you actually see what looks like a little leg dangle down. And then her arm, you know, instead of running like this, she suddenly swings one of her arms behind and, and clutches something to her. And then she disappears onto a flat spot on top of the knoll. When she reappears in camera sight, suddenly she gets five inches taller, which was measured by the photogrammetrist that, that analyzed the whole scene. But it looks like a little infant has climbed up onto her shoulders and has his head sitting on top of hers as she walks away into the tree line. I mean, it's the most natural and spontaneous looking, looking thing. You can see her breasts. And as she's running, the breast tissues gyrating uh, in a very natural fashion, you know. And, uh, you, you know, it is what it is. I mean, <laughs> you, can, you can say it's not, but... It, uh, it's I, a very I just like I liked that choice of I liked that word usage a lot. 
You like which one a lot? Gyrating. 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 Not just not not just, just jiggling. They they were gy- gyrating. Made me laugh. <laughs> Next up, thanks for your question as well. Brainbug says, "What are the interlocutor's thoughts on the my? Is it pronounced Mayaka ape?" Oh yeah. In short, the my the photo of the Mayaka ape is a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum exhibit, and you can find uh, various iterations, slightly different uh, pelage colors, slightly different vegetation but it's a mannequin. Mm. And I, I just, that's another one of the things that irritates me is that it continually, even though we demonstrated that previously, and uh, I had a, a friend who sent me a picture taken in a Ripley's museum and it's, it's it, uh, but it gets all kinds of traction. I mean, the only other alternative is that it's a, it's an escaped orangutan. Mm. Um, that it's a bizarre it would be a that's, bizarre looking orangutan yeah i had to look it up real fast but that's that's a classic one that that goes that does go around a lot and the, yeah, yeah the, the, that partic- particularly if that that's an escaped orangutan i've never seen something with collage like that i i'm right. also inclined to, to i've seen i've heard the, the ripley stuff as well and that one yeah it's it seems pretty it seems pretty cut and dry yeah i mean the report was an anonymous letter to a local uh police station uh, you know, I just, you know, the, the circumstances around it are, are very questionable to begin with. But then once you see the exhibit, it's slammed on. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. And let me check. Oh, that is it for our questions. Want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. We really appreciate them, folks. And so please do check out their links. We are, this has honestly been, we've gotten so much positive feedback. I hope you guys know that seriously, people really enjoy this. And so thank you, Dr. Meldrum. Thank you, Erica. It has been a true And this pleasure. was a blast, honestly. I, okay. I've, I've been looking forward to this all week because okay. I actually reread, I, I read your book before, but I reread over some of some of kind of the highlights. I, I went over some of the, um, the, the chapters that I remember really enjoying and I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. Like I had my list of questions, all the stuff I want to talk about. It was very fun, very enjoyable, very fun for me. Well, likewise as well. It's always, I always find it invigorating to uh, to have a, a, especially an intelligent conversation with, with someone that can appreciate the arguments and and, and not react emotionally. So I, I uh, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Your, uh, your command of, of the, uh, uh, of the disciplines uh, that you're involved with is is also very very admirable. Speaking as speaking as one whose whose memories are beginning to age and, uh, and that's uh, a huge enormous compliment. I actually I spent my PhD in the fall, so that's just great to hear. Yeah, well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, good deal. Gotcha. And want to say yes, folks. They're linked in the description. I'll be back in a moment with a post credit scene, giving you updates about upcoming debates that you don't want to miss folks as for example you'll see at the bottom right of your screen a juicy debate that is i don't know if you guys know this this is i was surprised someone told me my friend andy reached out to me and he reads just constantly he knows what's going on on the internet apparently the jfk assassination question is like really popular in some circles on the internet right now and so really we're like well hey we'll give it a shot as well as we've got some juicy political ones next week as well that you don't want to miss but i'll be back in a moment with more news on those and so thanks one last time to erica and dr meldrum it's been a true pleasure thank you 
Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.